You're tuned into The K Mag Podcast. Online source for horror, thriller, and sci fi entertainment news. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 5, season 4 for DK Mag Podcast. My name is Ken Artuz, founder and editor for DKMag.com. And joining me on this podcast are my co hosts. Enid Artus, content contributor for DKMag.com, and be sure to listen to us in Google Music. Stacy Cox, staff correspondent for DKMag.com. We're on Stitcher. Be sure to rate and review DKMag on Stitcher rating and reviews and help us rank. And this podcast episode is a very special, exclusive interview episode. So we've set aside a time, we scheduled, we booked the entire week for exclusive interviews for upcoming projects, upcoming releases uh, in the field of horror. And we open our exclusive coverage with Jeffrey Riddick, writer for the upcoming supernatural film Dead Awake. Following that interview, we have Edward Lyons, writer-director for Alfred J. Hamlock. We have Justin Jones, producer for American Exorcism. Samantha Stewart, star actress from Voodoo. Ernest Farino, writer and director of The Monster of Dread Inn. And for the last portion of our interview, this is actually a spotlight crowdfunding that's currently in effect so stay tuned for that interview uh, for all the rich information on how you can support that project and as I mentioned before our whole week was booked with interviews from all these talents so be sure to give each interview a listen Uh, they provide some rich information on their uh, production um, and everything that they went through just to create these films for the horror audience. Movies. Will Smith to star in Gemini Man. Gemini Man is in development. Will Smith is in negotiations to star in the action thriller. The project will be produced by Jerry Bruckenheim. Jerry Bruckheimer. Ainge Lee is in negotiations to direct. The story centers on an aging assassin who finds himself in a battle with the ultimate opponent, his clone who was 25 years younger at the peak of his abilities. The project has been in the works since 1997. Darren Lemke introduced the pitch. However, due to the lack of visual effects technology, it was put on the back burner and was picked up by Skydance in October. Not much information is known at this time. Stay tuned for details or for updates. Um, now, one thing I will say is that Will Smith is known for these kinds of films. So, you know, he's all about that end of the world and apocalyptic films. Have you guys seen his other films, more recent films? You know, I have yet to see Suicide Squad and I know Will Smith was that was in that uh, in that project. Um, aside from that, 
Ini, uh, do you remember anything more recent than that? I am legend. Yeah, wow. That was I, old. Yeah, I am legend is kind of old. But I am legend is actually a remake from a remake because the other film was I am Omega Man and the other one before that was I am something Alpha Omega something like that. But uh Will Smith uh uh, have you seen his the decline of his career, uh, Stacy? I, I don't think he's been doing so well. You know, now that you mention it, I can definitely see it. Um, I mean, as you guys mentioned, you know, like I Am Legend, I, Robot, those films are older. Of course, he's known for Men in Black. And I have seen Suicide Squad. And I will say recently, like that is actually a change in direction for him because he's just been all about this, like, just like on this whole end of the world path, you know? So when he starred in um, Suicide Squad, it was in a change of direction. But yeah, now that you mention it, I haven't really seen him that much. I think he's also trying to um, get um, Jaden and Willow out there too, aren't they? Yeah, but you know how it goes with child actors. Um once they get involved with the wrong crowd and i'm not talking about the party crowd i'm talking about the, the people behind the scenes and in, in movie making once they get a hold of those kids forget it they get corrupt right and plus wait jaden actually he's into fashion right now is he fashion model and then willow i think she's more into music right she's a rapper i have no idea do you know anything about the wilson's kid Mm, no, only that his son is trying to get a career in movie as well. But other than that, no. Yeah, I don't really follow. Well, yeah, because I know Jaden plays in the um, uh, what's that remake? Uh, the is it the Karate Kid? I think. Oh yeah, the, the Karate, karate kid. kid. Yeah, yeah he plays true. in that, right? He yeah, plays he in the was. Karate Kid. Yeah. And he also actually he played in uh, the Pursuit of Happiness um, with Will Smith. He played in that. But yeah, I think they're trying to get them really out there. I think they're they're probably their attention is focused more on that now, making a name for their kids. And last time I checked, Jaden is into fashion. I think he's uh that uh he will he modeled some stuff for calvin klein i think and wow. then willow last time i heard she was into rapping hmm, interesting and you know what the german man that movie um the concept behind that film that reminds me any wasn't there a film that we seen that uh hmm that the cop travels wasn't it with bruce willis i think it was with bruce willis that there was a clone in the past and uh he had to go in the past to fight his clone was it bruce willis or jason statham remember that they traveled to the past and then they found this kid and his kid has uh, like psychic powers i think so the movie's not coming into my head right now exactly but I think and then then you had van damme didn't he make something like that too like a time cop type of thing jet lee the one jet, ah, jet, that one i remember jet lee, right jet lee the one right that he there was multiple people that looked like him or i think it was just a clone a bad guy 
right one i remember right right you see so um gemini man is you know it doesn't sound so unique in its concept uh well will smith you know what they need to find for will smith since his career is not as good you know keep him in suicide squad or you know do a spin-off since uh, hollywood loves to do spin-offs about his character from uh suicide squad <coughs> you know there's so many things for him to do you know to try to keep his career from dying hmm. i agree i think um yeah i like I don't think his uh, movies are really all that good. The movies that he's produced, or were he the pro the producer of like I Robot and I Am Legend: Pursuit of Happiness, or I know he acted, you know, but did he actually? He was actually the producer or director, right? No, I think he's like the producer or so. But still, yeah. he had a great career though. He's makes he's made he uh I think it's fifty to 25 no what is it 75 to 25 percent the 25 percent being bad movies and the 75 percent being good movies but that was early in his career with the men in black and stuff like that yeah yep not anymore no i think and it's not his fault i think the audience doesn't want to see you know audience always like something fresh so i think they got tired of his roles he plays the same role over and over it's just different movies look what happened yeah. to nicholas cage you don't see him anymore mm -mm. yeah so i think it's just the audience that they, they didn't want to you don't even see his wife um will smith's wife the Jada. last time yeah she was in the matrix that's the last time i remember yeah yeah right mm -hmm. right that's the last time oh probably we just don't keep up with her career uh, probably that too <laughs> He-Man Reboot gets 2019 release. I am Adam, Prince of Eternia and defender of the secrets of Castle Grayskull. This is Cringer, my fearless friend. Fabulous secret powers were revealed to me the day I held aloft my magic sword and said, By the power of Grayskull! Earlier this week, there were some reports on a reboot and a reimagination for He-Man, the classic cartoon series that was so popular back in the 80s. And I remember growing up to this cartoon. So according to reports, uh, David Goyer is writing the script and it was suspected that McGee would be directing and he is notable for Charlie's Angels. The updated report, according to Screen Rant, is that McGee is no longer attached to direct, but they have David Goyer solidified as the writer. Now, David Goyer, if you check out his credits and IMDb, he has written Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, Constantine, The Dark Knight in the Playroom. I don't know what that's about, but he also wrote the Dark Knight Rises and Call of Duty Black Ops 2 so this guy uh, David Goyer he's very good at um, designing concepts for animation or comic book characters so it remains to be seen what type of direction He-Man would be taking would it be a serious tone would it be 
uh, close adaptation to the cartoons uh, that remains to be seen and here's another good news for He-Man fans across the board He-Man Masters of the Universe would release on the 18th of December 2019 that's that's fantastic so until we get some further updates especially with the cast i'm interested to know who's going to portray these roles stand by for dkmag.com for further news on masters of the universe he-man and also note before i close this uh introduction 1987 adolf lundgren portrayed he-man and it was a failure and I think Frank Langella, he was playing the role of Skeletor. And uh, even though that film failed, it's still to this day is like a cult classic because that's how many He-Man uh, fans of the cartoons are, are out there. So Anid, let me start with you. Um, do you remember <coughs> He-Man? And what do you think about this re reboot of this uh, franchise? Yes, I remember He-Man the anime series right yes i do remember it um the tiger was one of my favorite characters um and so what was her name she used to turn into a big bird oh yes i don't i don't remember I, i'm gonna say red sonia but that's not red sonia no <laughs> well she i used to like yeah, they, they, I, I, I enjoyed the cat too. I remember I had the cat. I didn't have He-Man. Somehow I got the cat. I don't know how I got it. But yeah, that was one of my favorites. So Stacy, are you young enough to remember He-Man? Yes, I am. And uh, well, I it's actually not too long ago where I started watching them. They, uh, they came on Cubo at night and I would like whenever I didn't have to work the next day I would stay up just to watch He-Man, She-Ra, Braystar all of them and um, and then they were on Netflix for some time so I was like binge watching He-Man and Masters of the Universe and I loved it and um, so I will say that I'm excited for this adaptation I am yeah me too um, you know usually we say no to reboots but you know what that 1987 film with Dolph Lundgren that wasn't that wasn't so good you know and I would blame the special effects because you know He-Man you need special effects for He-Man there's no way around it um, it's gonna be not special effects like lasers and stuff how Lord of the Rings is designed you see that's a lot of CGI so I think if they infuse something that realistic with He-Man, I think it'll be good. Yeah. So what do you think, Anita? You you're looking forward to this one? Uh, I hope it's good. I hope they don't mess it up. Yeah. That's all I have to say. Yeah, but um, with this writer, um, David S. Goyer, um, he's written some good stuff. You look at that. Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, Man of Steel. I mean, he has a good track record with comic book characters. Well, written and actually seeing it is two different things. Well, we've seen all the Batmans, and I, I don't like Superman. Including the last one? Yeah. yeah. Mm, the no. Dark Knight Rises in 2012, that was with, uh, that was with Bane. 
Yeah, that was with my favorite actor, Tom Christian Hardy. Christian Bale. Yeah, no, Christian Bale, the Tom Hardy, my favorite actor, Tom Hardy. But Christian Bale was Batman, right? Yeah. Exactly. See, let's not go into the Christian Bale and 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 Ben the Duck Affleck, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so closing remarks, Stacy is looking forward to this, huh? Yes, I am. Yay! Yeah, we all agreed. Finally, a reboot to look forward to. Resident Evil Vendetta. The CG animated film Resident Evil Vendetta will hit movie theaters worldwide this year. The film will be released internationally on May 27 and in the US and Canada June 19 for a special one-night event from Phantom Events, Part Circus and Sony Pictures Worldwide Acquisitions. Phantom Event CEO John Roby said, We are thrilled to bring Resident Evil Vendetta to the big screen for its U.S. debut. This sequel is even scarier and more thrill-inducing than the previous titles, with mind-blowing CG animation that should be seen on 40-foot screens with the highest quality sounds and visuals to further enhance the fan experience of this beloved franchise. Also, Nick Barley, co-CEO of Park Circus said, we couldn't be more delighted to be working with our colleagues and long-standing partners at Sony Pictures to be bringing Resident Evil Bandera to cinema screens around the world. We know that the thrills, adrenaline, and action-incredible CG animation that characterize this long-awaited sequel will be welcomed with open arms by audiences across the globe. For those of you who are interested in seeing this movie, tickets for Canadian screenings go on sale March 24 and can be purchased at www.cineplex.com. Tickets for U.S. screening for Resident Evil Bandera can be purchased online beginning March 31, 2017 at www.fathomevents.com or at participating theater box office. For information about all the territories, visit the Park Circus website. So what do you guys think about this Resident Evil Bandera? I'll let Stacy take it. Take it take it away, Stacy. Oh man, I honestly I need to get caught up on these Resident Evil movies. I'm, I seen the first two and that was it. <laughs> I need to get caught up. It's like what number is Resident I mean it's Vendetta? What is it like number what, five or six now or something like that? Well, this this is 
the and the CGI anime for Resident Evil. Oh, um, so it's something different from the movie. Oh, it's totally different. It's <clears throat> totally different experience. Okay. Yeah, um, it sounds good. It does. It sounds good. So I can't wait till it comes out. Yeah, sometimes the CGI version is better than the actual film. Yeah, because this, if it's one thing that the Asian market, the Japanese market, one thing they know how to do is CGI films. You see, here we have pets and we have, well, what's these other movies that is coming out? Toy Story. And you see, we stick to those kid-friendly CGI while over there is adult-oriented. They have Appleseed, which is one of my favorite CGI animes um they have resident evil they have um well, countless others um very good films so first you and the thing is with these cgi films you don't have to see them in sequence just like the um, live action resident evil so you could just go to the movie watch vendetta and it will take you into a storyline in the resident evil uh, mythos so what do you think of that, Stacey? That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's very cool. And have you kept up with the video game, Stacey? No, I haven't. Oh, <laughs> uh, you see, they, they are number seven now, and number seven seems to be doing pretty good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, nah. I have not played any Resident Evil game. Oh, wow. Um, but you know the characters, right? Chris Redfield and uh, and his sister. You have the basic concept of the characters, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So instead of what you know, the disaster that uh, the Americans did, Hollywood did with uh, this Resident Evil films. Uh, over there, the CGI version sticks to the video game. So. You know, you have the the characters from the game. You have the creatures from the game. So that that's a, that's a plus in itself. Awesome! Yeah, I have to get the games. I, for me, I'm not really that big on games. So one thing, one game I do want to get is Outlast too. When it comes out, I'm intrigued with that. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool, and I'm glad. You know, not to stray off topic, but it's related. I'm glad that the video game market is um, taking focus on survival horror games. You see, they went the route with Call of Duty. That does not work. That does not work. So stick to the true survival horror. I'm, I'm still waiting for Dead Space for them to, to fix their mistake with that game. Outlast looks amazing. Friday the 13th looks amazing. So yeah, so Resident Evil, do check it out. Phantom Events, right, Denise? Yes, Phantom Events. Yeah, I'll, and it it's headed Memorial's Day. So that's on the, that's the end of May. So that's a perfect time to watch this film. Yes. Helen Mirren joins Winchester cast. Winchester is currently in production. The horror, th the horror mystery thriller is directed by Michael and Peter Spear. Co-written by Tom... Bond. 
time bomb. The cast stars Helen Mirren, Sarah Snook, Jason Clark, Angus Sampson, and Emily Wiseman. The synopsis, based on the, the true story of Winchester, a woman who was convicted, who was convinced that she was being haunted by the ghosts of people who were killed by the famous rifle that her family manufactured. After the sudden deaths of her husband and child, she threw herself into a never-ending construction on her sprawling mansion, which features stairways to nowhere and doors that open onto walls to appease the spirits. Though the mystery of the mansion is famous, there is little known about who Winchester was as a person. The directors, Michael and Peter Spirit, based their research uh, for the film on public records and letters. Winchester is set to hit theater spring 2018. Uh, Anid Ken, have you guys heard of this story and what do you think? Yes, as a matter of fact, DK Mag was one of the first to post news on this film. I mean, this was back in 2016, early portion, if I'm not, if I'm mis not mistaken. So I'm very much familiar with this project. Also, I'm very much familiar with the Winchester home and the history. And the home is very weird because it has even been featured twice on Ghost Adventures. And the reason is because there's, they suspect that the Winchester mansion which just as you elaborated, uh, Stacy, this mansion is huge, and there there's state curses that lead to nowhere, doors that open onto the outside. Um, I mean, it's a weird labyrinth, and the reason why is because Miss Winchester, after her husband passed away, she created this home because she was getting really in depth into the spirit world. And to confuse spirits, the angry spirits that were killed uh, behind the Winchester rifle, they will get lost in the hallways of the of the Winchester home. So that's pretty bugged up. So, Anid, do you do you have any idea of this uh, mansion, the Winchester mansion? Yes, the one that has stairs that goes nowhere. Yes, heard of it. Seen movies. Seen. TV shows about it, yes. So what do you think of this upcoming movie? Is this something that uh, piques your interest? This is this is an eye-opener. I'd like to see that. Yes, I would love to see it as well. It definitely sounds interesting, something that I would like to see. I love movies that are based on true stories or true events, so... Yeah, especially about how they talk about all these places that they have lots of stairs lots of rooms going nowhere it also reminds me a little bit very vaguely of the um um what's his name the, the mansion um h h h homes the homes mansion so that kind of uh got my interest right there as well hmm the h h homes mansion Oh wow! I don't remember yeah. that mansion. You never. Uh, you haven't um, heard of that? H. H. Holmes is um, a 
America's first serial killer. And he built a mansion out of a storefront. He turned into this mansion with hundreds of secret rooms, tunnels, stairways, and everything. Um, and he actually had his own crematorium inside of it as well. So like when visitors, you know, pop up there, they go missing inside of the mansion. Oh, is that the one who, is that the serial killer who used to, uh, um, he used to melt the uh, people in his basement? Like he'll take the, he'll kidnap the people from the carnival and uh, he'll just, yeah. oh, okay. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I remember, um, they're supposed to come out with Devil in the White Sea. We talked about that before with um, Leonardo DiCaprio. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I remember. So, um, There's a book about it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the I think the book is called Devil in the White Sea too. I thought. Yes, and you but, know uh, what? I have the book at my day job. I have the book there. It's just collecting dust. I should just pick up that book and start reading it because that that does sound interesting. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, this film, Winchester, uh, you mentioned, like, the, the mansion and secret rooms and everything, rooms that lead to nowhere. It, re it reminds me of H.H. Holmes. So it really intrigues me based on true events and everything. So, yeah. Yeah, like I said, uh, they, they suspect this place to be haunted, the Winchester house. Ghost Adventures went there a couple of times, and... Uh, According to their findings, there were some stuff there. But of course, you take that out of light heart because it's reality TV. Yeah, yeah you can <laughs> never depend on reality TV. They could be lying. Of course, just for ratings. Exactly. But, yeah. I'm, I'm real iffy on those on reality TV shows. Yeah. And you know Zach. Zach, he always uh, blows things out of proportion. And also, I, I feel like... When it comes to that mm. type of stuff, the only way you will like see proof is that you're there at the right time. It's not one of those things where you could just take a camera, go throughout a house and try to find something, you yes. know? That's well, true. I used to like Zach, but I kind of don't like him no more. Yeah, He's kind of like a <laughs> to me. <laughs> yeah, Aaron, Aaron seems to be the, the cool guy in the group. Yeah, but not the other. No, I even forgot his name. See, done with him. <laughs> no, you know what? Closing this uh, segment, um, I would love to do ghost hunting. I would love to do that. You see, just to see if there's a documenting, uh, documented proof of some type of uh, ghost or poltergeist or. You know, I'll stop with the Portuguese and the ghosts. I don't want to see no <laughs> demonic entities. I don't want to see none of that. So we already know that Mr. Artus Adikemag would like to go ghost hunting. So anybody who's interested, just be kind to send him an email. He'll be more than likely willing to go on ghost hunting. Yes, I would gather a, you know, some audio, uh, uh, visual crew. You know, volunteer basis. If you think your place is haunted, I would love to check it out. I'm I'm going in as a skeptic. You can <laughs> always start at, you know, rumored uh, haunted, rumored uh, institutions like what Mansfield Prison. You, know, you can always start there. You could always start, yeah. 
I mean, every city's rich in history. And places like the Winchester place, oh, that's that would be awesome to go to. But uh, just gotta wait and see. Yeah, for the film. <laughs> yeah, see how good is it. Chase Williamson next horror film. Actor Chase Williamson. He's very popular in the horror scene. You may know him from John Dies at the End, The Guest, Beyond the Gates, and the VHS spin-off Siren, which released last year. So actor Chase Williamson has another project in the works, and this is titled Green Light, and it co-stars Shane Coffery, Caroline Williams, and Chris Browning. So the synopsis of the film it seems pretty familiar to me and it's a concern it's a hard thriller that concerns a young starving artist who after being offered the opportunity of a lifetime must decide if he's willing to bleed for his art when he learns that his new gig is a cover-up for a crime of passion uh, this is very interesting uh, plot and it sounds like a thriller sort of like the guest which was a fantastic home invasion concept way ahead of its time and the soundtrack was awesome so green light sounds to be that way and while i was researching uh you know getting some more information on this film which uh, ew entertainment weekly seems to have broke the story first i could be wrong but uh this this is according to our source uh, you know, reading the synopsis, it reminds me of the 2015 film directed and written by Michael Meraglia, and it's called Deep Dark, and it has the same type of vibe, you know, a struggling artist, and he comes across a supernatural entity that helps him progress in his endeavor, but, you know, after realizing uh, there's no parallel, I think green light is a more thriller oriented film uh no news yet on a release date for this film so i'm assuming it is either in pre or post and stay tuned for dk mag for more information on green light actor chase williamson's next feature i need uh have you any familiarity with actor chase Williamson and the films that he has done. No. Name on you. You seen the guest? Yeah, you just don't remember. Yeah. You in VHS? You seen VHS? The yeah. the siren, the girl. Maybe. Probably it was so whack that it probably you know that I for, I tend to forget movies that I consider whack. Whack. So, <laughs> why is Stacy laughing? <laughs> She's laughing at me forgetting the movies, <laughs> or you going? She's laughing. She's probably laughing because uh, yeah. Why are you laughing? <laughs> <laughs> no, because no, she said, you know, I forget movies that I think are whack. <laughs> I do. If it's whack and I don't like it, I forget about it because they didn't catch my interest. Well, to me, The Guest stands out. That was the awesome film. I, you, you've seen The Guest, right, Stace? 
the guest? No, I haven't. Oh. The only one that remembers. But I have seen VHS, and I actually I love the VHS thing. And that siren segment was that was, I love that. That's probably one of my favorite segments. Oh, what did she say? I think I like you, or something like that. Yeah, she was crazy. Oh, uh, she was she was gorgeous. Oh my gosh, that's a gorgeous. Those creature. movies, you know what? Um. I don't feel VHS those movies get enough credit. Those movies are actually original. Yeah, that was a good concept. Uh, VHS was a good concept. I'm not into the found footage part, but there were some parts, especially yeah. Siren, that was pretty good. Uh, uh, we reviewed Siren, the spinoff. It uh, it wasn't as good as I had hoped it would be. Uh, it, it felt very cliched. But um, I haven't seen Beyond the Gates yet. And John dies at the end. I'm going to have to agree with the need. Uh, I don't remember watching the film. If it's whack. <laughs> but according to this cast, Greenlight looks to be a good, uh, a good lineup. You have Shane Coffrey from Starry Eyes, Caroline Williams from Texas Chainsaw Part 2, and of Chris Browning from Sons of Anarchy. Wow. Well, according to the source, Greenlight is going to be written by Patrick R. Young and Eric England and the director of the 2013 Contracted and the upcoming Huntsville. So then the film is produced by England and Rudy Scalese. Interesting. Okay. Something to look forward to. I'm always up for a good thriller. I hope it's a good one. And now what? It's the little things that, that just crack me up. <laughs> Conjuring to the Nuncast. Clap. I'm gonna get you now. I can breathe. We have yet another update on the Conjuring spin-off movie, The Nun. And it's about the new addition to the cast, and this time it's Bonnie Ahrens. And she will reprise her role as the unholy sister. This movie is based on characters from James Wong, The Conjuring movies. And now we know that production is set to begin in May in Romania. As we already told you, the plot details are being kept a secret. And New Line Cinema has a release date for July 13, 2018. Yes, it is a Friday, making it a Friday the 13th movie what do you guys think uh we already discussed uh, the the conjuring the nun uh basically take it away i'm gonna just dissect this uh, thing <laughs> <laughs> well um hey I, 
I'm gonna go back to my original thoughts that Annabelle wasn't great. I don't feel like the nine is gonna be great either. And um, I feel like it'll probably be rushed. More than anything, they won't sit down and you know really think it through and give us a quality production. So yeah, I'm not really that excited for it. <clears throat> yeah, and I'll stick to my guns. I'll stick to my guns. The nun, I'm not looking forward to the nun. I'm not looking forward to the crooked man. I'm not looking forward to Annabelle. Uh, these spin-offs is tiring. And they go you know what I think they're doing? They're just milking the franchise just like how they did with Saw. And they just gotta do the same way how they did with Saw until the box office returns are poor that's when they start making this film so it's up to the audience if they still want to just watch this these type of movies or they gotta just keep these movies coming yeah i mean they whack they really whack <laughs> and that's gonna be my favorite word for today whack 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 well I don't know. I don't think it's going to be good too either. But why would they want to do a movie about the nun from The Conjuring? Like, don't they have any more ideas? No. Well, because she probably was scary in The Conjuring, just like Annabelle. Annabelle was creepy as heck. In she didn't scare me. She was creepy. <laughs> Annabelle? That little doll was creepy. Yeah, no, she was just creepy. Like, she gave me a creepy vibe. When they came up with Annabelle, they were like, Oh, yes, it's gonna be good. Yeah, no, no, she just wasn't as creepy. So far, her all 50, the things yeah. that go ahead. No, I was just gonna say her 15 seconds of fame was good in The Conjuring, but yeah, no, they, they just totally killed it in her own film. They totally killed it because they yeah. rushed it, you know. Yeah, they be saying all these movies, yeah, it's gonna be good. It's gonna be good it's gonna scare you scare you from where not from your seat maybe your ears get scared from hearing the music so loud on the movie theater but other than that there's nothing scary about them the poster art is gonna be scarier than the movie probably well all i could say is that uh uh i'm not looking forward to it that's all i could say Peter Harrow horror debut, what the fuck? This is our last spring break together. We should definitely do something fun. I got it! Two words. The woods. Just picture it, right? Back in a secluded cabin, way far in the woods, nearest neighbor's like a mile away. Oh, best part about it, it's got no working smoke alarms. Oh, oh, we're so scared. Creepy cabin in the woods all by itself. I need to conquer my fear. Horror fans who are interested in these gory slasher films would be very excited to know that writer-director Peter Harrow's horror di directorial debut is titled WTF or that's a censored version of the true uh, title of the film which is titled What the Fuck? So this film 
takes the slasher concept back to its roots. Here is an excerpt for from uh, Peter Hero's comment according to the press release. It took me a long time to put together the cast and crew. I spent three months in auditions making sure the actors fit the parts, were up to the challenge and had the same passion as I did. Equally and as important was interviewing crew members to get the right people for the jobs. I'm so happy and thrilled for the team. I have worked on this project. Everyone put in 100% and gave it their all. And there you have it. WTF, as I had mentioned before, it takes the film, the horror slasher concept, back to its roots. It places a group of teens in a secluded cabin in the woods. That is the setting for the story, typical for any slasher film. As for the gore factor, that remains to be seen. WTF will be releasing on video on demand and DVD and of course that includes Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, Voodoo and Steam on the 1st of August 2017. So stay tuned because more video on demand platforms will be announced for this film. And let me tell you this is a true B-horror slasher film. So with that said, you're not going to expect to have the high caliber acting as you would in typical horror films from Hollywood. This is an indie film, a, an ambitious writer-director taking the slasher concept back to its roots. So uh, let's start with you, Stacy. What are, you, what are you th your thoughts on this upcoming slasher film? What the fuck? <laughs> What the fuck, man? Oh. <laughs> um, hey, I feel like, um, I guess it sounds like it's going to be good. It sounds a little cliche-ish, but I guess we won't know till we actually see it. So, yeah. Yeah, it is very cliche. And cliche being that you have typical Caucasian teens looking for a good time in a cabin in the woods and some deranged killer picks them off one by one. Yeah, That's exactly what it sounds like. Exactly what it sounds like. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I know that's the name of the movie. But what the fuck for real? Yeah. That's like a played out. He's taking slasher back to its roots. I mean, what can you do with the slasher that that hasn't been done before? Just say what the fuck. What the fuck? Yeah. I think we're gonna meet our quota of saying the word fuck in one episode of our podcast than we have done throughout the whole season. <laughs> oh shit. Oh, uh, see, no, it's that that wouldn't fit the title of the film. No, more like. What the hell? Yeah, no, that's still. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know why called the film "What the fuck." Yeah, maybe because it's a catchy title. It, it grabs your attention. The title definitely grabs your attention. I mean. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm not sure. 
and uh you know because friday the 13th you have you know makes sense and halloween makes sense nightmare on street makes sense so i don't know how this what the fuck title ties into the storyline me neither well <laughs> well one thing's for sure even if the film is you know a cheesy or as Anit says whack uh you have to give credit peter hero uh his first directorial uh horror film debut uh, he's very ambitious it looks like he put a lot of thought and a lot of work into this film so um you've got to applaud the the uh the filmmaker for his vision <laughs> And at the and when I watch the movie, if it's like cliche like I thought, I'm just gonna say, "Man, what the fuck?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all you could do. I yeah. hope the audience don't say "What the fuck" after they watch the film. What the fuck? What the fuck did I just watch? Right. Uh, well, the, I mean, the this picture of the woman looking like she's screaming and blood everywhere it makes you think: Is it gonna be like a torture kind of film? So, uh, according to, uh, based on the trailer, uh, catch the trailer on YouTube or better yet, uh, on the article accompanying this, uh, our latest podcast, uh, we'll be posting up the trailer for what the fuck. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so just yeah. go watch the fuck. <laughs> yeah, so it, it just looks like a typical slasher film to me, nothing new. To the table. Exclusive interview. Jeffrey Lee Dick Writer Dead Awake. What's making you scream at night? Just a nightmare. You know, the one where um, you're falling and you're about to hit the ground. Or how about when you wake up and you open your eyes but you can't move? For our first interview, I had the pleasure of speaking with Jeffrey Reddick, producer, writer, actor. Mr. Reddick is notable for the Final Destination franchise as he served as writer and producer. But we're not going to be talking about Final Destination in this interview. We're going to be talking about Reddick's upcoming supernatural thriller titled Dead Awake. The film touches base on the supernatural and sciences. And this is a very clever concept because both of these beliefs go head to head. But there's more to the film than this conflict. You have a very interesting protagonist and the antagonist while shrouded in mystery serves a very intriguing bit of creepiness that i mirror closely with the japanese uh, horror films especially the ghost tales and stay tuned to dkmag.com d-e-c-a-y-m-a-g.com for our advanced exclusive review of this film and to 
And before we get into the interview, let's discuss the film a bit. Uh, Enid, uh, what was what's your opinion on Dead Awake? Uh, overall, the the plot and the the concept of sleep paralysis, and especially supernatural versus science. <clears throat> I mean, in my opinion, I think that it all has to do with your mind and how you control it. Because one of the points of how you was able to defeat this entity was you needed to control your mind you needed to be able to wake up you know automatically from the sleep paralysis exactly and that's yeah i got that um observation as well it's giving you like uh how do you say that uh an advice to tackle your fears that's very interesting um stacy um, I know you're familiar with these films uh, with sleep paralysis and dreaming. Um, have you seen Dead Awake? And if not, uh, what's your opinion on this type of concept? I have not seen Dead Awake, but I am um, familiar with sleep paralysis. I know it's a very scary concept. Um, as far as in movies, I don't believe I've seen um, that much about sleep paralysis. I know there are quite a few movies out there about it, but uh, just the concept alone is uh, horrifying. Um, and actually the trailer for Dead Awake is very horrifying as well. Yes, and uh, um, as a matter of fact, do you recall you had penned an article on the composer for Dead Awake, Mark Vanacore, and uh, he provided some very creepy soundscapes for this film oh yes definitely i agree i mean it's uh yeah very uh very creepy and uh when i watched the trailer and you know listened to the background music and everything and that alone just kind of gave me shivers yeah so. um i gotta admit uh sleep paralysis it's interesting because in our conversation uh uh, with Mr. Reddick and I um, and I knew about this uh, even beforehand but every culture across the world they document entities that are related they have different names but they do the same thing for example vampires every culture has a vampire and every culture has an entity that does something to you while you're paralyzed in your sleep you have the succubus, you have the incubus, and uh, this character here is is very interesting. Why do cultures across the world share the same entity? What do you think about that, Indeed, It's creepy, right? Yeah, it's pretty creepy, but it all goes off, again, how your mind likes to play tricks on you. No, 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 no. Let's not talk about in your mind, because Indeed, I know you have a story that is creepy as hell and it, was, it involved you being asleep and you woke up that that wasn't in your mind right let's not get into that right now you see i could get into it i know i had one experience of no actually i had two but i, I can't verify the first one but one sleep paralysis incident that i had i did not open my eyes i was awakened and uh, that's, that's a creepy thought because there was nobody in the room to wake me up. It was tapping me on my shoulder. There was nobody in the room. 
and I know if I would have opened my eyes I would have seen something that I'm not supposed to so sleep paralysis and all these uh, supernatural elements behind it they, there has to be something behind it something that science cannot explain <coughs> have you ever had this type of incident uh, Stacy can't really say I've had sleep paralysis before um, one thing I have quite often are nightmares and of course uh, it can be because like you know I watch horror movies but um, <laughs> I always dream about the movies that I watch always and probably one of my scariest dreams was uh, when I was falling from a, like a tall bill like a skyscraper and I woke up right before I hit the ground but I actually fell out of my bed and on the floor oh wow yeah, that literally happened. I oh just my like gosh. I jumped up and I fell on the floor. And actually I fell on the fan. Oh what? Yeah. That's and crazy. um and I used to I used to wake up mid of my dreams because they used to be really scary. But nowadays I don't wake up. I wanna see what happens and unless it gets very drastic, I don't wake up. I sleep all the way through the end because I wanna know and I'm just like what actually happens. Like, what would have happened if I hadn't woken up? And interesting enough, in Dead Awake, not to give so much away uh, of the plot, but the same thing of a nightmare on Elm Street, whatever happens to your dream happens in real life. Um, that, that's pretty creepy because I had an incident one time that I had a dream and I was fighting these shadow people. And I, uh, I got hurt. Let's put it that way. I got hurt. And when I woke up, I had marks on my body that shouldn't have been there and uh, they were in, in the back right they need were they in the back of my shoulder right yeah so there was no way I could have inflicted those wounds on my own um, there's nothing on the bed and it, it hurt like for a week I remember and you see there's something about dreams we don't understand science cannot explain yeah but what i had wasn't a dream or sleeping paralysis it was just somebody plain and simple tapping me on my shoulders i was sleeping it has nothing to do with sleep paralysis but it but it got you in your sleep though that's the thing but just like in dead it awake it was trying to awake me you see it was trying to wake you up see okay <laughs> fine uh, without further ado, here is my interview with uh, writer and executive producer Jeffrey Reddick on the upcoming film Dead Awake. And like I mentioned before, be sure to stop by DKMag.com for our exclusive advanced review of the film that would release on the 12th of May, 2017. This call is being recorded. And I'm going to state a brief interview, uh, a brief introduction, sorry. My name is Ken Artuz, founder and editor for DKMag.com. This afternoon, I am joined by Jeffrey Reddick, writer for the upcoming supernatural thriller, Dead Awake, set to launch this 12th of May, 2017. Thank you for joining me, Mr. Reddick. Hi, how are you doing, Ken? Thank you, thank you. I'm going to open up with the first question. Uh, one of the interesting observations in Dead Awake was the common folklore and sleep paralysis with the supernatural. As a writer, what were the frightening aspects discovered during your research? Well, the most um, interesting thing that I found out was that one in three people are going to have sleep paralysis before they die. So that was something that I was totally unaware of. 
Um, I'd actually had it once, uh, very light. I unfortunately, I, I always tell people I wish I had some really scary story of something evil attacking me, but it was just I was paralyzed <laughs> for a few minutes and scared. But um, the fact that that it, you know that so many people had experienced it was awesome. And then when I would, did more research and started seeing how far back this phenomenon goes, I mean, they talk about it in the Bible. You know, the term haggard comes from the term night hag, which is the entity that they believe sat on your chest, choking the life out of you. So, you know, it's in Shakespeare, it's in the Bible. And so the idea that this this belief has gone back through, you know, almost since the beginning of time um, was fascinating. And also the idea that people from all over the world kind of report the same thing, you know, seeing the same thing. There's just something kind of eerie about that being a world consciousness kind of thing where all of these people from different cultures have seen different things and, um, you know, are, are seen this hag. And sometimes it's, it's, it's other things as well. but. Um, you know, they also believe it's the reason that, you know, a lot of people report alien abductions, you know, because that kind of phenomenon that where they can't wake up and they can't move, but something's like doing something to them and they can't stop them. Um, it's, you know, it just fascinated me that it was such a big phenomenon. Um, and I just had no idea. So that was really the most interesting thing to me. Um, and then it, it was kind of coming up with a way into the story about it because it's like, well, if so many people have had it, you know, why – aren't people dying all the time from it. So we kind of came up with a mythology for the movie that kind of centered around belief. Um, you know, so once you really start believing in this sitting ghost, you know, this evil entity, um, the more strength you give it to come after you. So, you know, that was an interesting kind of way to figure up the, um, you know, figure out the kind of why, again, if it's such a big phenomenon, why aren't people dropping left and right from it? So coming up with that mythology was a very fun challenge. Yes, and one of the since you brought it up, and I was thinking the exact same thing with the extraterrestrial uh, phenomena and the f old folklore. If it's uh, common, they have a common thread somewhat. Yeah, they do. They do, and that's what's um, that's what's fascinating. About it. I mean, it just kind of, I mean, I I love movies that can kind of touch a chord with people that, you know, all around the world, something that we all share in common, and you know, we all have to sleep at night, but then the idea that we've all you know, again, people have reported seeing so many different things. I mean, the night hag is very common, but it's also like, you know, this men in black and men in, you know, some tall man with a hat. And there's just, you know, it's just interesting that there's this, you know, it kind of, to me, just shows that we're all kind of connected. You know, everybody in the world is connected on some primordial level um, because we all have these same fears and, you know, people that have never met from across the globe are seeing the same things. So that just, to me, is kind of an interesting, you know, kind of connectivity thing that um, I get to kind of exploit in a scary way in this movie. So. And um, it's interesting when in horror films sets a platform for believers of the supernatural and those uh, in the sciences to battle wits on the unexplained. So what stance do you lean towards, especially during the writing process for Dead Awake? Well, um, there were, there were you know, I really wanted to set up the dichotomy between the supernatural world and the scientific world. So, you know, we have um, a doctor played by Laurie Petty, who's very much in the science world and is all about the scientific, you know, explanation behind sleep paralysis. And then there's another doctor, Hassan Davies, who's played by Jesse Borrego, um, who's come from a, you know, more unorthodox background, and he's been researching this phenomena and studying it, and has, has found cases going back throughout history. Um, of this. And so it does really become a question of science versus spirituality. 
and the supernatural and this and you know, you know, my belief is that they're kind of linked. You know, we've always society's always kind of put them at odds with each, with each other as far as like, well, science, you know, is here to disprove the supernatural or the the otherworldly, and, and I believe that it actually proves it. You know, um, but just not in ways that we expect. So that was an interesting thing to to kind of delve into with our main character because she's investigating this and she's got these two different sides pulling at her. You know, like this doctor side and the and the supernatural side and the more she goes down the supernatural rabbit hole um, and gets people in her life to start believing in it, she doesn't realize that she's actually bringing this evil on the people around her. So, you know, by the time she realizes it's kind of too late, she's already got everybody around her to believe in it. So it's, then it's a race against the clock to try to save her friends and family. It, I got to admit, uh, by watching the film, that was a very clever psychological twist. It opens a door for many interpretations of what the protagonist is going through. Yeah, no, I, and it was really fun to 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 write that, and it was also it was fun, you know, with this horror movie. I mean, we didn't want to really, and you know, because I, I, you know, you know, Final Destination is just like fun, and you know, a lot of blood. And this one we wanted to make fun, but you know, I really wanted to focus more on kind of the characters. Um, and their interactions in the family and friends and, and, you know, what happens when you put people in your lives in jeopardy when you're trying to help. You know what I'm saying? So I wanted to kind of, you know, really focus on, on that more. So even though there's death in the film, it's not, you know, it's it's more like old school horror. It's not really the splatter death that, that, that I love in the Final Destination movies. It's a much more kind of eerie, creepy, you know, emotionally impactful kind of death I think for this is what we were really going for yeah, it's, it's a definitely a refreshing pace uh, from the uh, the Splatterfest and um, I want to jump into the protagonist uh, portrayed by Jocelyn Donahue her internal conflicts becomes apparent as the film progresses so what was your approach in placing this her psychological trauma as a catalyst for the supernatural well, you know, I wanted her to be somebody who at the very beginning of the film is very um, career driven, very focused. And, you know, she, you know, she's kind of a glue that holds her family together. She's got a twin sister who's been battling addiction and um, is suffering sleep paralysis. And so she doesn't, you know, she doesn't believe her what she's saying and doesn't believe in the supernatural. And then, you know, some, some events occur in the film that start her questioning that. And so she's kind of got to let go of being like a type A personality and just, you know, focus on the facts. And she's got to start opening herself up um, to this kind of supernatural world if she, you know, if she helps survive. So it was kind of, it was really interesting to kind of write a character that goes through that arc, um, you know, from non-believer to believer. Um, and it was great to have Jocelyn. She's an amazing actress and just so wonderful. And, um, you know, she got to play twins. It's very funny because a lot of people that have seen the film are like, who's the other sister? I'm like, that's Jocelyn. Um, so they don't realize that she played twins in the film. So I think um, she did a great job making the characters distinct. Um, and our director did a great job of just directing them. So, you know, you, you can not tell that it's not, you can't tell, you know, that it's very seamless how he shot everything um, to make all those scenes work with him. Yes, as a matter of fact, I got to confess, it caught me off guard, too. And within the act two, I kind of figured it out. Oh, this is the same actress. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, um, in most horror yeah. films, the antagonist has a reveal and a backstory. So 
for dead awake? What is the foundation for this entity? And in other words, what is its drive? Well, its its drive is to feed. Um, its drive is to to basically consume souls. And I kind of came up with that because, again, just through my research, I realized that you know the belief in this has gone back to biblical times. You know, they talk about the night hack in the Bible. Um, Shakespeare talks about it. Um, so I wanted to have something that was kind of ancient and, you know, it really, you know, I didn't want to give it like a backstory because it's, I think it's something that's kind of older in time. So, you know, I think for, for me, it's, you know, we make it kind of clear in the story that it, it, it feeds, it needs belief to survive. And then it feeds off of people who start to believe in it. Like it attacks them until they can't fight back anymore. And then it consumes them. Um, so that's what its goal is. It's almost like a shark. Um, you know, like, if, you know, Freddy Krueger had kind of a, which, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street definitely a um, touchstone for this film. But, you know, Freddy Krueger had a definite, you know, backstory as far as revenge. And with this one, again, it was, since it was such an ancient force, I didn't want to try to come up with a, a story that would kind of limit it, what it, you know, what it was. I just wanted to make sure that its drive was clear, that it, you know, needed belief. And then once it had you believing in it, it could consume you. Uh, that's definitely the case. And from the script to the screen, uh, the transformation for, of the antagonist, did this creature, this is entity, fulfill your vision and how you picture it to be? Um, it does. I mean, originally, you know, originally we're going to go more, you know, where you didn't see as much of it and it was more, we were going to need to go more CGI with it. Um, and, you know, but Philip's, you know, old school and he wanted to do, and I am too, I don't like CGI very much unless you're going to do amazing stuff with it. And so, you know, then we just, you know, if you look really closely at the night egg, you know, it's very interesting because it's like this, you know, it's got stumps on its back from where it used to have wings and they've fallen off. And, you know, so it's, um, yeah, it was really cool to kind of see that evolution. Um, but it was definitely a great discussion between the director and I, because originally I had had more of a you know, digital kind of nebulous idea in mind. But then we also just realized again that, you know, it's going to look like the Frighteners or it's going to look like something, you know, like it's, it's always going to look like something else. So we decided to kind of keep, to keep it as grounded in reality as we could. We were going to go practical. So I'm really happy. Uh, Natalie Jones plays our, our night hag and she does a great job. Um, yeah, that was a very frightening character, man. Yeah, and she put a lot. It was interesting because she put a lot of work into it, you know. And um, she's friends with the director, and she's always wanted to work in one of his things. And he's like, "Well, we cast everybody but the hag," and she's like, "I'll, I'll hag it up." <laughs> and she did a great job. She really, you know, gave the gave the the villainous like a character and personality. Yes, and in in my opinion, it does resemble that that eerie, creepy uh, Japanese theme type of entity the the movement is yeah. very creepy yeah yeah and that was you know that was a that was a choice as well and so it was it, you know you know because in japanese culture they believe you know they call it the sitting ghost over there um so there there's definitely like a little homage to that to that culture in the film as well great thank you and um now that's it for my question because i was in the impression we have a time limit <laughs> um yeah, um, I have to, to jump on another call in a minute, but um, if you, yeah, if you have any more questions, I I could take it, you know. Well, or I can give you a quick call back. 
if you want well, after I, I do this other one. <laughs> well, what I usually do to con conclude the interview is an open platform where you could uh, just free reign and and uh, give some information about the film. Oh, well, um, yeah, no, I mean, it opens on May 12th. Please watch it. Don't download it illegally. <laughs> Please. <laughs> <laughs> too many people, I have too many friends who, you know, independent film, like, you know, we, we, we only get by if people actually rent the film or watch it. But, um, you know, it's, you know, people going into it, I think they're going to just get a really good, you know, creepy scare fest. Um, you know, we really focus on characters with this one. Um, I've done the roller coaster ride splatter fest with Final Destination, and I love it. And I'm writing a slash film for Lionsgate right now called Superstition that we'll be shooting in June. And so, you know, I, I've done my splatter and I'm doing my splatter stuff. But for this one, we wanted to kind of go from just more of a classic kind of old school uh, genre film. And um, Nightmare Elm Street's a big influence on me. So people are going to, there's a bathtub scene, which is in the trailer, so I'm not spoiling anything which was like my intentional homage to Nightmare on Elm Street, but people watching it will end up saying about probably five or six things in there that they think that I put in there as like a nod to Nightmare on Elm Street, but they were all accidental <laughs> um, through our set designer or through our costume person. There were some choices they made. I'm like, oh, that's just like Nightmare on Elm Street. And they're like, oh, we didn't know that. We just did it for this. Um, so um, it's just a film I'm really proud of, you know, and, and um, it's a world I think people will relate to. And it's, you know, it's, got fun characters we've got a very classic kind of old school horror film mood to it and um yeah i mean you know we had a great team that worked so hard on putting it together and great performers and you know definitely i think the fans are going to dig it yeah and we've already got ideas for a sequel too <laughs> oh, you see that was oh, that was supposed to be my next question if there was going to be a sequel to buy it um yeah if, if enough people see it in the theaters and don't download it <laughs> we will definitely make a sequel Exclusive interview, Edward Lyons writer-director Alfred J. Hemlock. I take those that suffer because their lives have no meaning. And yours has been a meaningless life. Rains all night, the day I left. The wind the sun so hot I froze to death. <laughs> you don't know me! On the 1st of May 2017, I had the pleasure to interview Mr. Edward Lyons. Mr. Lyons is the writer and co-writer, excuse me, co-writer and director for the upcoming horror short Alfred J. Hemlock. Alfred J. Hemlock is a very intriguing film. And this is a film that I have not seen a, a well-executed concept in such a long time because you have a very rich antagonist, you have a very rich protagonist, and they have some type of chemistry that is very, is very fluid, that is, is almost perfect in a way that if this was expanded into a feature film, I think we will be looking at of the next horror icon actually so alfred j hemlock here's the synopsis when emily's boyfriend abandons her in the night her only way home is through an alleyway where she is terrorized by the mysterious entity alfred j hemlock 
The cast includes Renee Lorman, Tristan McKinnon, Christian, uh, sorry if I butcher your name, Christian Carisio, and as I've mentioned before, Edward Lyons directed the film, and the co-writer is his wife, Melissa Lyons. So in our interview, which is our second international phone call, and for this phone call, I used Skype. Unfortunately, we had some dropouts during the interview, so I did manage to splice it together for it to be as seamless as possible. And uh, Enid, you've seen Alfred J. Hemlock. What is your opinion? I, what, look at that protagonist and the antagonist. I love that concept. Give me your opinion. Well, actually, at the beginning, when I watched the, um, the short movie, I was like, oh, my God, poor little girl, you know, being mistreated by her boyfriend and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, she just wished she could die. And after that, after she said that, you know, Mr. Hamlock, the character, just started trying to make her life impossible into, I guess, at one point, he says a keyword, which that keyword kind of woke her up and she's just like totally changed her mind and she was like nah I don't want to die so that's when the part comes with the little cockroaches no don't bring it up just please. how you like it no, you know don't bring it beautiful up. Oh, no, nice no. cockroaches you know coming out of his mouth because she became stronger so by her being stronger he turned into a small little cockroach and she just stepped over him. Hey, hey, don't give too much plot away here. Here now, you don't spoil it for everybody. <laughs> but uh, look at the antagonist. I really enjoyed the antagonist. That's the thing. Horror icons, you have to have a strong character. You know, Freddy Krueger has a glove and he has his character. You have Jason with his machete. He has his character, but Hemlock, that's... That's a pretty cool character right there. I dig the guy. Yeah, he's pretty cool. But you know, he, doesn't he remind you of uh, Pirates of the Caribbean? Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. I forgot his, the character's name. His, his demeanor, the way he carries himself. Yes, it does. Right? Mm -hmm. Right? But, uh, and the conflict... You see, every horror movie has to have a story and uh, what is that? What do you call that? A point of view. And the point of view here is to be strong and And you. not to always want to live. That's what the point of the story is. Live life strong every day. Yes. And it's despite the problems that you may have, you got to move forward and fight cockroaches. Yeah, because when she heard that little keyword that would make her walk up, then that was her strength right there. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, you have a lot of people, who, uh, especially, you know, <coughs> problems get to you, a boyfriend breaks up and all this nonsense. You have to wake up and you have to move forward. This is a very good lesson that this movie presents. Uh, Stacy, have you seen Alfred J. Hamlock? And if not, uh, did you check out the trailer? I have not seen Alfred J. Hamlock, but I have watched the trailer, and I must say that it does look really good, and I can't wait to watch it. Yeah, and 
correct me if I'm wrong, Stacy, but isn't it true that you have to have a very strong character for to be a horror icon? Uh, oh, yes. I definitely agree. Yes, it's so true. I agree. He did very good. Yes. And Alfred J. Hamlock debuted on the Bermuda International Film Festival. Uh, congrats to the team involved. And I hope uh, many more awards would be in the forecast. And I say that um, with great expression. Uh, everybody worked hard on this project. And listen to the interview. Uh, Mr. Edwards, Edward Lyons, uh, did give out information rich information on what the crew went through just to make this film and that goes to show you the hard work and dedication a team goes through to make a film for the fans and without further ado here's my interview with mr edward lyons director and co-writer for alfred j hemlock But let me start out with this uh, first question. Um, sure. Who is the construct called Alfred J. Hamlock? Who is he? That's a, that's a, that's a really fantastic question. Um, originally, I was going to, when we were writing it, I was going to be, how he, he began was I was going to make it quite literal in that it was going to be a not a not a supernatural person, but uh, a person of a devious nature waiting for uh, our heroine in the alleyway and was going to accost her and maybe even take it quite further to really dark depths and, you know, into rape and things like that, which is really quite nasty um, and like threatening her in that way. And then it, I decided that that was just too confronting and too literal and for any point that we're trying to make with the film about her character would be, I think, um, upstaged um, by that particular moment. It'd be just not, not, not the sort of thing I would even really want to watch. So I thought, okay, if, we, if we're going to do this, then we need to find a way to move this character into a realm like the supernatural where he can become metaphorical of um, – lots of different things and lots of different meanings for an audience where they can then come to, if they want to make certain connections about, well, that's just like, or that reminds me of, then an audience member can do that on their own terms um, in a way that's comfortable for them. So that's kind of where he started and we moved him into the supernatural. And then I had lots of discussions as we were writing the script and we decided that he'd be a demonic force that was, as old as time itself, um, that he dressed like a butler type character. The reason he dresses like a butler is because he's trying to remain subservient or um, in, in, in a way that he's, in, he's, he's non-threatening. He's there to serve you. He's there to help you. He's not there to attack you because he needs to seduce his victims. He needs his victims need to need to we decided there'd be some rules for him in order to be like he's a soul leader really is what he is and he needs consent he needs your consent to be able to do it that's kind of the rules of the game and so we developed him and said okay what if he's a butler character and then we talked to our costume designer sarah hoke and um we talked about the idea of his costume being a mismatch of different elements because if he's very old then he would probably replace parts of his butler-esque type costume with 
different parts and different components. So they'd be all from different periods of history. So you'd only replace parts of his garment or his clothes as they wore out. So that it'd become a complete sort of weird mismatch of clothing. Um, so that was kind of how his costume became about. And the great thing is with the costume fitting was is that we got Tristan, the actor, Tristan McKinnon, the actor, came in and we did the costume fitting um, about two months before, I think, before we actually started filming. So he actually had input into the costume and what he was going to wear. And that really informed the character. And then him and me and Tristan then had lots of long conversations about the character's history, about um, how he's as old as time itself, how, how he would um, need to seduce his victims, how they would need to consent to being taken um, and what the stakes were for him that if he wasn't successful then he would die he would cease to exist he had to feed on souls in order to remain um, to remain to, to live to to exist and if he didn't didn't replenish his food or didn't replenish his energy in that way by feeding on souls then he would he wouldn't be no more so the stakes were always always very high for him um, it was either eat or or die um, so it was very primal for him. So that's kind of about how he came about. And then the actor, Tristan, just just did a hell of a lot of research. And he was a really, um, i got to say, like a, an amazing actor because he just kept coming at me with questions and he would just go away and do more research. And then we'd spend like two, three hours just talking about this character. So he certainly didn't just learn his lines and try not to bump into the furniture when he walked up on set. He, um, this guy did, uh, you know, what you'd hope an actor would do, which is become the character. And he really did. When he stepped into that costume and he, he was, I guess it was kind of a form of method acting going on. He just totally became that character and it was just the, the, the person was gone. And then we ended up with this, this, this strange entity on set, <laughs> which was Alfred J. Hemlock. Um, and he was great. It was fantastic to watch him work. Absolutely. And, and one of the most shining aspects of the film is uh, you guys present a defined antagonist. You guys created a horror icon with the acting, the wardrobe on every level. Oh, cheers. Thank you. Yeah, no, we worked it's really hard to to have him be as iconic as we could. I mean, I was influenced by a lot of different films. I mean, I, whenever I'm creating something, I guess I draw upon the things that I feel are closest to what we are creating or something inspires me. And I was particularly inspired by um, a whole heap of really, I mean, there's Freddy Krueger stuff in there. There's there's nods to Evil Dead in the, in the film, like the, the, the song that he sings, Oh, Susanna came from um, Army of Darkness because there's a scene in Army of Darkness where I don't know, I'm sure you've seen this film, but, uh, yes. you know, where they've got the, the windmill sequence and the evil ash and the good ash come out and they're joined together and they're running, they're sort of crab walking together as they're trying to split apart. And as they're coming down the hill, um, the evil ash is singing, Oh, Susanna, don't you cry for me. And it's just really weird and misplaced and why is it there? It's just bizarre. And I remember hearing Bruce Campbell um, talk about that particular scene on a, um, 
a, a commentary on that film and he said uh, Sam Raimi, the, the writer-director, comes up and says, oh, by the way, in this, this scene, Bruce, I've got this great idea. You're singing Oh, Susanna. And it's like, why? Just because I said it, it'd be great. And they just threw it in there and it's just funny. And we come up with the idea of the tricycle because we, we wanted to do a whole sequence where there was sort of nods to other horror films. We wanted to do a nod to like that iconic scene in Nightmare on Elm Street when you first kind of see Freddy and he walks down that alleyway and you see his long knife fingers. We kind of wanted to do a nod to that. And then there was Saw and that was of interest to us because the guys that created Saw are also Australian and to do a nod to their film would be cool. So that's where we got the idea for the tricycle. So now we've got the tricycle. Now we've got the song. And then when we put Tristan on that, on set, and I said to him, guess what? You're singing Oh Susanna. I just learned this song. Don't ask why. Just learn it. <laughs> Tried to repeat basically what Sam Raimi had done to, um, done to Bruce Campbell. And he just owned it. He just got on that tricycle and it was like he was always meant to ride it. And all, all the crew, as soon as they saw him in his in costume, in character, and on that tricycle, um, pedaling that down that alleyway, singing that song. I remember my VFX artist, um, uh, Lucas Newton, turned around to me and said, Ed, that is just brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> that was a very good effect. How it all came together. It was just strange. But, yeah, and another film that was influenced big time was The Shining. Um, that was a big influence on me as I was creating this film because we didn't want to go for the – the gory type horror where you're chopping people's heads off and letting the blood run down the screen. And I love that sort of stuff too. Um, but I kind of wanted to do something that was more psychological and a bit more like what you see in the shining where it's just disturbing. You know how, you know, you see Jack Nicholson's character go into the bar and he starts talking to people that, you know, just aren't there, but, or are they there? And the things that are saying are disturbing and it gives you chills because are they there? Are they not there? What's real? Um, so that was interesting to me as well as, as drawing. And I guess that's why one of the scenes where he's running in slow motion towards us in, in the rain, he's got an axe because that's kind of now a nod to Jack Nicholson and The Shining. So we're bringing in all these other influences um, from other things. And then we just turned it into something that was, you know, reappropriated into our own imaginings. And um, it came out as something, I guess, hopefully kind of familiar but also very fresh at the same time because it came became something that we pushed into you know brought into what we were creating and then kind of made it our own um but by the same time paid homage to all those um films that we just love and uh, filmmakers that we greatly respect well i tell you alpha j hamlock is is original it's fresh and uh it's gonna it's gonna make a big impact uh in the film festival scene. Oh, cheers. Thanks. Yeah, we, we, um, yeah, I hope so. Um, yeah. Cause again, those actors worked, um, all of them worked very, very hard and the, we actually had to film, we had to shoot the film three times. Um, Ooh. it was that tough. Yeah, it was crazy. We went out there the first time to shoot it and we got rained out. We were absolutely completely just the first night, um, cause we were trying to film it over two, three days over a weekend. And we got out there the first night, I think it was a Friday night, and we had to shut down shooting at 9 o'clock because the heavens just opened up and it was just coming down so heavy. Um, the gaffer's lights were blowing up. Whoa. So <laughs> wow. he came to me at 9 o'clock and said, um, yeah, I've just lost one of my lights and I'm about to lose some more. Um, 
yeah, I've got to shut it down. I've got to, you know, I can't afford to lose all my gear here. So we have to pull it. And then we went out the second night and attempted to film it again. And the rain eased off a little bit, but then opened up again. And we just got rained out again. Um, so it was just pretty um, devastating at that point. And, yeah. and, then, and then we kind of regrouped and thought, okay, well, this is a film we really believe in. And we'd all worked very hard to, to get out there and do it and to find the location and put all the pieces of the puzzle in place. We couldn't get the same cinematographer back because he was booked on jobs and we missed um, um, some other key crew couldn't come back. So we had to recruit it. And then we went the core, a lot of the core people stayed with us, like our, our costume designer, um, uh, sound person stayed with us. Well, we have like a core group of us that keep working together. Um, so a costume designer, a makeup person, Aiden Hearn, he stays with, he's been, he's done a few films with us now. So we have our core guys, but um, we lost our cinematographer and our gaffer. So we, we give, we, 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 um, um, geared up, got the people, went back out there again. And on the second time we went out, we had a technical difficulty with the camera that we discovered after we shot. After we shot. And uh, most of the footage was unusable because oh, of a problem. Wow. Yeah, we were completely and utterly devastated. At this point, uh, I think someone actually said to me, Ed, you just got to accept sometimes your films don't get made. And uh, I, I didn't, I was said to them, I'm not prepared to accept that. Um, no way, I'm not giving up. Um, sorry, I believe in the film and the people that are with me believe in it and we're going to just find a way and just keep going. Um, so then we went out, we geared up with the new cinematographer because um, the cinematographer before that, he was now booked up on other jobs. Um, so we got a, Simon Harding, we got him on to shoot it and Simon was amazing. Um, Simon is like... For many years, he'd been um, known as an, a camera operator, and so, and he was like known as the guy, the big go-to guy here, in, you know, particularly in Australia, and I'm sure internationally as well, because he'd worked on King Kong and Star Wars, and all these big, big productions. And um, I was told by a friend of mine who's a well-respected cinematographer here in Australia, said, "Look, Simon," he said, "when anyone wants like an ace operator who's like the, the top of his game, they said it's this guy." And Simon was moving um, at that stage. It just recently, it just recently shot his. I think it was his first, um, his first feature film, which is an Australian film called Reuben Guthrie, and he just shot that. So he was looking to make the move to step up from operating and step and be a cinematographer within his own right. And he's also um, a highly accomplished um, Steadicam operator. So that meant that it also him coming on to shoot it um, also brought. Um, a steady cam with him, which was wonderful. So we had the luxury of having a steady cam operator. And being an operator, if we needed to get a crazy shot, um, like if it meant hanging upside down from his toes from the top of a ladder, he had no problems doing it. Oh my God. <laughs> so yeah. he was great. Like we had ladders and we had cranes, and he just got to go up there and, you know, um, with it, because we shot it on a red dragon. So by the time you gear up a red dragon with all the stuff on it that goes with it to build out the camera, it's not light. It's not like a DLSR. It's a full production camera. So he was no problems wrangling that and hanging from his toes and getting the shots and very athletic and really threw himself into the piece. So we shot the film right through from top to bottom with Simon and um, we managed to get it all. But 
the great thing about it, in hindsight, what's looked like disasters, when, especially the second time when we shot and realized we didn't get it, we just had unusable footage. In that time, it gave us more time to work on developing what we had and to come up with, to invent more things for the film that weren't there the first time that we shot it. Um, and also because I was also editor, I could look at the footage and go, you know what, this is great, but if only I had a shot that we had of this, that would have been better. That would have been made it a better sequence. Or what if we had done this because this would have been better than what we did there? And so it just gave us time to um, flesh out and develop how we were doing it. It was like the first two times were big elaborate dress rehearsals. <laughs> Mm. pain of production and all the struggles and then the third time we went out to do it we we learned a lot of valuable stuff about the film and was able to develop a lot of other cool stuff for it so had we got it in the first weekend that we'd planned to do it actually would not be the film that it is now so sometimes things happen for a reason so in hindsight like now i look back at it i'm glad that we had the struggles that we did because it enabled us to make the film that we ended up making because it would have been easy we wouldn't have, I don't think, anywhere near as strong a film as what we had if we got it first time around. So uh, sometimes do things to happen for a reason. So it's kind of didn't feel lucky at the time, but now I think, um, you know, I'm glad it worked out that way. Yeah, definitely. And as a matter of fact, with your description on, on, on the film and the process, it ties into the film itself because the commentary is about rebirth and perseverance. So in a way, it's like a, a parallel for your circumstance. Yeah, yeah, uh, true. Yeah, it is about not giving up and and, and not giving in to your demons and not the, the the demon of self doubt and this can't be done and all the naysayers on the sidelines say give it in. You know, sometimes you don't get your film made. You might as well quit. You're not going to go out there again, are you? Um, yeah, all of those things and. The, the, the crew, to their credit, just kept coming back out. I'd ring them all up and say, you know, it was really hard for me to ring them up and say, you know what, you know, we're out there all weekend shooting. Um, we didn't get it. What? Which part didn't we get? Um, all of it. Uh, that, that must have hurt. And, and, know, you know, it was, hurt it was a tough call to make. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, I, I would have been in tears. Uh, I was pretty devastated when I saw the footage. And I don't know if you remember, at the beginning of the film, there's an elevated shot where we're looking down on the alleyway. And that was a crane that we had to rent. It was like an, on the back of like a small pickup truck. And you just drive the truck into position. You get into the little, um, the small, um, like the bucket of the crane in the back and just self-operate and go up and down. And it was a great to have it. But the pickup and delivery of it was 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 harsh because it was like at least an hour and a half away from where we shot. So we would, me and my wife would go out and pick that crane up um, the afternoon of the day we were shooting and drive an hour and a half to the location, park it there for the next day or the day we got it. I think sometimes we got it the day before. So we'd get there and then after which been up filming all night comes the returning of the gear. So we're returning cameras and stuff. And the very last thing we ever had to return at the end of the, because we'd film all night, then we'd spend the rest of the next day once we completed for shooting for the weekend, returning everything. Um, so we do like 24 hours with no sleep. I remember driving out to the outskirts of Sydney and it'd be an hour and a half drive, driving this crane back, which was the last thing I had to do for the um, returning of everything. And I'd just be like struggling to stay awake behind the wheel. <laughs> And then we'd get home and finally just 
dropped dead into bed. I mean, it was, it was you know, getting out there and getting set up and shooting it. Another problem with the film too is we'd get to that alleyway and there would be people that parked their cars in there, like there was residents around there and we'd have to run around and knock doors before we'd started filming and ask people, find out whose cars they were and ask them if they could be generous enough to remove their cars because they were right where we were shooting the night before and now we're going to have a continuity error because we've got a car where it shouldn't be. Right, exactly. so we'd get to the location and we'd have to, I'd get there every night and, <clears throat> and because we, I'd just get there just biting my nails thinking, geez, how many cars are going to be parked in there and how many doors am I going to have to knock on and asking people to please remove them um, so we can film. Um, so that was another struggle of the location, not to mention the weather when it kept raining. But that shot where he's running slow motion um, at us, is like I remember when they were setting up for that shot where he's running slow at us towards the axe and people are going to think we had a rain machine. Um, we had no rain machine. That was real rain. That was, <laughs> that was real rain. Oh. It was really raining on us. It didn't... I thought it was CGI. <laughs> oh, man, that's real rain. Um, I remember they set up for that and we were – there was a whole quite a few of us standing around the monitor at the other end of the alleyway and he was standing up. Tristan was in character up at the other end while they set that light behind him. And as soon as we looked in the monitor, we saw it with the rain. As soon as they turned that light on, the rain just all lit up and you could see it. And you could oh, you just see it in the monitor. I thought, right, there's the money shot right there. <laughs> Quick, shoot it, shoot it. Because exactly. oh, <laughs> wow. I could see the rain cloud was going across and it, it was going to stop. Um, the one time I didn't want the rain to stop, it was easing off. And I said, quick, get the shot, get the shot. So they run around like crazy, tweaking the light. I said, tweak it no more. We're rolling. And we rolled and we got that shot. And as soon as we had finished shooting that shot, the rain stopped. And it didn't rain again for the rest of the night. So It was meant to be. It was, it was, yeah. that was it. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like luck. Sometimes you just get lucky. We, we were owed a bit of luck because we had so much bad luck. So we're at a lucky break and that was kind of again the rain was kind of a blessing in disguise because that's kind of like an amazing shot that, that was uh, like i said i thought it was cgi so it, it it's perfect <laughs> yeah no it's real rain as as my um uh, vfx artist lucas newton said um he's worked on some big stuff he just recently came off um working on alien um resurrection he was working on that he was doing all the previous stuff for ridley scott um, talk about pressure. Uh, where are my cameras going to be set up? Hang on, I'll do a C 3D environment and create it and show you what your camera movements will look like. Give me a moment. He's a bit of a genius. Um, but yeah, he always says to me, Ed, even though he's a VFX artist, you think he'd love doing VFX. He's like, no, get it in camera. Get it in camera. Exactly. Yeah, it's so true. It's, it's some, there's some things you can't replace with the computer. No, he's like he's a big fan of get it in camera. He says as much as you can, always get it in camera and just use the CG to enhance what you've got. Um, it should be invisible. It should be part of the film. And there were some things where we had to use CG because we couldn't get his arm to stretch out and extend like it does in a shot without some CG. And, of course, the cockroaches and what we have the actor actually does, um, what the character does with them, is not physically possible really for the actor to do that. So... There's some places, and I think that's the appropriate place to use it. Um, is in places like where you you kind of got it, but wherever we could, we always got it in camera. So, um, yeah, and CGI is very expensive to do. VFX is not cheap, um, 
So it's cheaper to get it in camera. Exactly. <laughs> it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. VFX is, um, the VFX guys say to me, there's not a magic button where you just press the one button and da-da, there's all your <laughs> wonderful VFX. It's, it's like mowing the lawn with a pair of analysis. It's tedious, hard work. I could agree because I do a lot of Photoshop and a little project turns out to take four hours. So I'm yeah. well aware. Um, one of the interesting things in the film is the protagonist, Emily. Um, mm -hmm. Amazing portrayal, by the way. I don't want to butcher her name, but it's pronounced Lorman. Renee. 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 Yeah, yeah with unusual spe spelling, but it's Renee. Yeah. Renee. <laughs> <laughs> but she actually serves as the yin to Alfred Hemlock, and he's the Yang, so they, they feed off of the, each other, their chemistry. Can you share some uh, insight on that chemistry? Yeah, yeah. Um, I knew Renee just just through work, and um, the first, um, and I knew her for a while, and I didn't know that she had a history in acting, and then one day she started telling me about how she was in theater groups, and I was like, okay, wow, all right, I didn't know that. So then we had a shared history because I actually started my career out as an actor and went through drama school and did all of that. Um, so I started talking to her and then I went to see her in a play in Sydney. She was doing The Merchant of Venice and she was quite wonderful in it. And so I could see that she was like uber talented. She really had some serious acting chops on her and you just – She's so hum she's so humble and unassuming and just a really great person, so funny um, that she just wouldn't just not the type of person to brag about what she's got, but she's got some serious talent. And I'd seen Tristan in a in a, in, a, in a student film when I was at when I was at film school, and he just popped off the screen. It was like the film that I saw was you know it was a pretty decent student film, but. It was it's it still played like a student film and he when he when he stepped in for his scenes it was like whoa who is this guy because he was just a step above everything else in that film he just stood out and I thought wow I want to work with this guy so when this script came along I thought that Renee would be perfect for the character because she's got the right amount of she can be tough when she needs to be tough but she can be also knows how to go to that place where actors sometimes can be very um, um, confronting where she knows how to be vulnerable and allow herself to be vulnerable and, and to, to just to reveal and open up is very difficult to do, but she just does it with such ease. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, she makes it look easy. It's, it's very hard to do that. Um, even the most seasoned actors would have trouble doing what she's just able to do. She goes, oh, it's my job. I've got to do it. Boom, and she does it. So I've got these guys into rehearsal, um, the, the, the pair of them with Christian Charis, who played the, um, the, the horrible, nasty boyfriend as well. And as soon as we got them into rehearsal and they started running the lines with each other and just walking the, the piece around the space, Tristan just started launching into his big monologue and where he um, just – starts tearing her to pieces with it and renee just fell apart and just started just started crying mm -hmm. she just was right in the moment from the get-go and i remember tristan dropped out of dropped his because well they were still on book that stage they hadn't learned their lines they were just because i'd said to them explicitly don't learn your lines learn the part you know the lines will come when you know what you're doing you, the lines will be there for you and so I said, don't lean your lines, come to rehearsal. And uh, he was on book and he looked down to see what she was doing. And she just, he just 
she just lost it. And he stepped out of this, he stepped out and said, what the hell? How are you doing that? He goes, I'm so jelly. I still remember his words. He said, I'm so jelly that you could just go there that far, that quick. And she said, well, I'm only doing it because of what you said to me. And what you're doing is causing this to happen in me. So from the very beginning, these guys had an amazing connection and um, really worked well with each other. And one night in the alleyway, because poor Renee, like it was freezing. It was down to in Celsius, it's like well, zero is us is, is where you know, for freezing for us is zero in Celsius. So I don't know what the temperature is in Fahrenheit, but um, it was like three or four degrees one night in that alleyway. And we were doing wet downs because the cinematographer, you know, thought it would look great. And so did I if we wet down the ground and get all those reflections of the lights and so forth. And it did look terrific. But it meant that we had a damp, wet ground and it was just only three, four degrees above freezing. And there was Renee laying in the ground with just a skirt on, bare legs against the cold, while we were all rugged up with 12 layers of clothing on. And she's down there just in a skirt and a top and just, oh, boy, um, she really went through the wars. And I remember her on the ground and she was going, oh, my God, I'm dying. It's so cold. And Tristan would be off camera because he'd be feeding his lines um, for her shot or for her close-up. And he would just yell at her, use that, use that. (laughs) (laughs) I know this feels terrible. Use it, use it. So he would be tormenting her. literally he was tormenting her and she'd go shut up and then she would you know she would turn around and she would use all that in the scene um and so there's a there's a real tears that you see (laughs) not fake tears she's really (laughs) yeah she's really using it but yeah she was able to do that in rehearsal though um she just could just go there and it was great shots where we had close-ups set up like at the very beginning when the boyfriend um, guy throws her on the ground and the camera pushes in nice and close to see her and we can see the tears in her eyes we pushed in several times in just a camera rehearsal and she started the tears from the get-go as soon as they started pushing in i remember the cinematographer simon saying not yet not yet not yet wait 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 <laughs> i'm just rehearsing my camera push in don't let go of it yet because obviously you don't want the, the, the actor to exhaust all of that before you get to the shot but right, she right. she was able to deliver on every take where we needed something that raw she could just do it um which is phenomenal you know and it's not just a matter of being able to manifest tears on cue it's the it's the ability to actually allow those um, such raw emotions to 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 come to the surface and just be there and to be so vulnerable so yeah the chemistry between her and tristan was was quite wonderful and they they had great chemistry offset and um um, joked with each other and had you know similar sense of humor and were very supportive of each other as actors as well um, even with Tristan screaming out you know use that use that <laughs> he was trying to torment it but also he was really trying to be supportive I think as well that's definitely being a supportive actor and saying it'll be great just use that put it into the scene we're gonna we're gonna do something awesome here so yeah those guys were great Perfect chemistry. Uh, you can't get any better chemistry than that, I tell you. And um, Yeah, no, I, I really got lucky. I really got lucky yes. casting those guys. It was just, you know, you just put the right combination of people together and you've got to get that casting right. Casting is essential because if you haven't got the right actors, what do they say? There's no such thing as bad actors, just bad casting. <laughs> it's it's an element, so strong element of truth to that. Yeah. And... Um, Alfred J. Hamlock will be premiering at the Bermuda International Film Festival. 
Yeah, it would have already done it by now. Um, it did it on the 1st of May. So I think it's what's the second or third, second where you are at the moment. So I did it a day ago. So it just premiered um, a few, I guess, yeah, about, yeah. I'm losing time. I'm working overnights at the moment. It's coming into Wednesday morning here. Um, yeah, it premiered about a day ago. Um, so we just premiered at, at Bermuda, um, which was a wonderful um, privilege to be able to play there. And, of course, it's an Academy Award accredited film festival as well. So we were really – it's a wonderful way to kick off our season on the, on the film circuit. And now we just um, – yeah, waiting to hear from more festivals. We've submitted to more festivals, so it's waiting to see what comes next. Right. So what is next for this project? I mean, you have a great antagonist, awesome protagonist, everything flawless. What is next for this project? Do you have anything in mind? Um, at the time, it was just make a really great, amazing, like just make the best short film that we could make and be true and honest to that art form. We weren't trying to make it as essentially we weren't trying to go out and try to make it look, we've got a feature film script. Let's cut a slice out of this, you know, let's slice out um, a scene and go make a proof of concept short film and try to get funding for our feature. We weren't doing that. We were just trying to make a really um, the best short film that we could make um, and have a really distinct beginning, middle, and an end. But we've since had um, quite a few people um, ask us, um, is this going to go further? We've had people contact us um, about the fans, just horror fans approaching us saying, I want to see more. Is this going to be a feature? Is it going to be a TV series? Is, you know, um, is, is it going to go to long form? I want to see more. So we're quite... Um, amazed at people's appetite for wanting more of it. Um, so, yeah, we've had a few people say, would you take it to feature film if that was the offer or some sort of a series? And I I don't think we'd have any trouble getting Tristan to step back into um, Alfred J. Hemlock. Um, he really, I think he was just really in a way beginning the exploration of that character and, find, you know, I think he discovered so much that the more he discovered, the more he realized there was to discover. So I think that he would love to step up and uh, take on that character again in a longer form. Um, I think he would yeah, be thrilled. And I'm sure uh, Renee, uh, Renee was offered the opportunity, so would she. And, um, you know, I would as well. I would love to explore that character further. Um, he's certainly a very interesting, very interesting villain. And that's all just good because it's all come together again through the process that I've mentioned, you know, it's just the right combination of writing with the right actor and the right costume has just all come together to create this, 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 this really interesting person. Well, he's not really a person. He's not really interesting. He's not a person, but yeah, what he is. And I, you know, I'd like to explore it further. I really would. I think it's, um, but we haven't had any plans to, to make it into a feature at this stage. We're just, we're just enjoying it for what it is and celebrating it for what it is, which is um, the best short film that I believe that I've made at this point in my career. Um, and yeah, we're ready to take it out on the film festival circuit and hopefully, um, you know, people love it as much as what we, you know, well, as much as we do, cause we're very, we're very happy with the work. I'm very happy with it as a director and a writer, what's come out. And yeah, we just, 
you know, can't wait to see it with our first audience, you know, to be in an audience at a screening somewhere and see people respond to it. And actually, Tristan and Renee and the cast haven't seen the film yet. So oh, <laughs> that's very much looking forward to it. <laughs> they have to sit down and watch their work. It's amazing. I held off from, we we're going to do a cast and crew screening here in Sydney, but it just, we just didn't get around to doing it. We were just so busy finishing off the film. Um, with the VFX, because the VFX were really tough to do, uh, to, to get that looking the way that it does at the end, like, because it's quite flattering. It's, 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 we feel very honored by the fact that you were grossed out by the cockroaches, because if they'd been really lame, you would have said, oh, cockroaches, you know, you try to, yeah, they don't look real. That looks, you know, I'm scared of cockroaches, but that, that don't, that nah, it's nothing, you know. That that that's really lame. So the fact that um, it creeped you out is is good. Is it means it's it's we got it pretty realistic, and it was very hard to do. And it took them, yeah, they worked really hard on that. And other elements of the VFX as well, um, they worked for a long time on. And these guys were guys that are working professionally on full time paying gigs, so they virtually had to squeeze it in when they weren't working, pick up tools and work on this. So we just had to be patient with them um, and just, you know, they did as much work as, as fast as they worked on it as fast as they could. And so they did some very long hours on it. Um, yeah, so, it's yeah, so very, really very happy product, to together. It doesn't look cheesy. It looks too, it's too real for my appetite. <laughs> <laughs> well, the VFX artists will be thrilled. Um, because, uh, um, Ahmed Nashabi, who worked on, he's actually, I haven't actually met the guy that, um, a name Ahmed, who did the, the, the animation of the cockroaches themselves. He lives in a different state. He lives up in Queensland. So we just communicated with him over telephone and over the internet. And uh, Lucas Newton, who's a highly accomplished VFX artist, came on this as VFX supervisor. And then later stepped up and became producer because he just threw so much of himself into the film, um, helping us out and made a lot of great stuff happen. And he actually had VFX artists here in Sydney working on the film. And then he was helping Armand up in, uh, up in Queensland um, do his part. So he was giving him guidance and support because Armand's up and coming um, and establishing himself as a VFX artist, but he's really, really talented. And Lucas is very, very talented, but has the the runs on the board. He has, he's worked on big blockbusters, um, and the last one being the latest Alien film. So he, he would, Armand would send us shots down from um, Queensland and then Lucas would review them and then send them back and say, okay, this is what you've got to do next to take it to the next level. So those guys went, were, had that sort of dynamic going on for quite some time and then they would share when they thought it was ready, they'd share with me what what they had and they'd say, what do you think of that? And I'd say, oh, I like this. Could it be, could we have this? Could we have that? And they'd say, you don't know what you're asking. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what you're, you're going to kill us. Um, uh, and then they go back and then they do it. And the really cool thing about Lucas is he's, he's kind of, it was funny because he'd say, um, he'd say, you can't have any more. You can't have any more. There's too many VFX shots. It's too intense. And I'd say, okay, cool. You know, you've got to be unreasonable, reasonable in a way and kind of say, okay, well, I can't push it too far. Um, because these guys are just doing it, you know, for the love of it. So I thought, okay, um, we can't have that. I got that. And he'd say, but you know what? Because he's also a filmmaker. He's a he's a, an accomplished editor as well, and he loves making film. Lucas does. And he says, you know what? I'm going to hate myself for saying this, Ed. 
He said, but what would be really great is that when he's dying at the end of wings burst out of his back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His wings. He said, I, no, I shouldn't have said that because that's really hard to do. And then he would just beat himself up over having suggested that. Because as soon as he said that, I, I couldn't see the film any other way but without that in it. So <laughs> that, that was a highlight. That was pretty cool. I have to admit that. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, he said, he said, I've been thinking about that for a while. I didn't want to tell you in case we couldn't pull it off. I said, well, now that you've told me, I, I, I can't uh, see you the came back have out. It. Have it. <laughs> amazing, amazing stuff. Uh, I'm going to go take up some more of your time. Thank you so much for all of this rich information. It's, it's, it's a pleasure to have interviewed you, pleasure to have reviewed this film. Uh, amazing. Thank stuff. you. And thank you for taking the time to, to watch it and for your wonderful words that you've written about it. Yeah, as I said, it meant, means a lot to these guys because they really did give it their all. Um, they really went out there and just they busted their ass to make this film. It was a difficult, difficult shoot. So, so now get recognized for their efforts in this way. It, it, honestly, it does. It really does mean the world to them. Um, I was on the phone to Renee the other day when we first announced that we got into Bermuda and when we, when that happened, she got on, she was on the phone and she, she started to cry. I mean, that's how much it means to these guys. So thank you so much. You're welcome. And, uh, extend my gratitude to everyone. Amazing stuff. Great stuff. And this is what we need in horror. We need some originality, some innovation, because you know, I'm, this gets tiring. You get the found footage, you get the reboots, this fresh take amazing stuff oh thank you so much thank you thank you coming from someone like yourself who's like watching a lot of horror and writing about it and critiquing it and analyzing it so to have that sort of um you know um positive praise from you it means it means it carries a lot of weight so thanks so much you're welcome sir and best of luck to your endeavors Thank yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, we'll 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 keep you posted with how we go. So any any significant updates with the film, um, I'll just send you an email and let you know. So I keep you on the loop with how things are progressing. Amazing. Thank you. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Likewise. See you. Bye bye. And here is an extended cut from the interview. Uh, this portion kind of got disconnected from the rest of the interview and yes it was an international call and technology often has its hiccups so in this conversation we were discussing the inclusion of cockroaches in the film Alfred J. Hamlock and our shared disgust of these critters uh edward lyons and i they say that after a nuclear war the only thing would survive is cockroaches right so they say they, they're survivors they could really know how to withstand the test of time and they can adapt i just or, could not deal i just could not deal with it i just i just something about them is i think it's like look with rats and things like that um certain creatures that we know instinctively wired into our dna that carry germs and d disease we know to be cautious or re repelled by them for our own you know for our own health and our own safety our own benefit and uh, so it's it's wired into us to be grossed out and ugh, by those sorts of things um, exactly <laughs> and so it's so it's kind of you know and it was a difficult decision to put that in the film 
um, because we knew, we knew we needed dramatically that a character, Alfred J. Hamlock, had to do something quite significant there for her to defeat him. It had to be a big moment. He had to do something that was, you know, so substantial and significant. And I, I thought, okay, what creeps me out the most? And that's that's when I thought of cockroaches because I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was a sense of dread, like, are we going to have them on set, like real ones? How will I cope? <laughs> oh, God. That's difficult to say. Luckily, there wasn't really any real. We had a couple of real ones, but um, the rest of them are all um, CG. But we did have a few real ones. Um, um, yeah, we like the ones crawling along the ground that she tread or she she steps back on and freaks out at. They were real. Um, we got them from a pet store that you know, people buy to feed to their lizards and things like that. So the pet stores sell them. Ugh, um, so that was handy to be able to get them. <laughs> I didn't handle them though. I did not have. I, I did uh, not touch. Them. I bet you did. It. <laughs> no, I mean, actually, my wife did. Mel did. She did that. She was very brave. Um, she she grabbed them and put them in position for sort of. It was just no time to be squeamish either, because you've got all the crew out there, and we had really rigorous, horrible conditions most of the time to shoot in, and it was it was very cold and. It was kind of, we've got to get this shot. So there's no time to muck around. It's the next shot on the shot list. We've got to get it, get the cockroach in, get it on the ground, get it in position. Come on, we've got to like, you know, X amount of other setups we've got to get through. There's no time to be, you know, worried. It's got to get it. Oh, so you kind God. of get overtaken by the moment and you get over those things, really. Um, you don't have time to think about it, but yeah. Wow. My wife, she would have done the same thing too. I don't even touch them. I don't. I don't like looking at them. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're they're goddamn awful things. Yeah, like we don't like we don't like them um, at all. And we have we have our house with have it sprayed and we have baits out and everything. If we see one, both me and my wife will run through the whole house and tear it upside down, and we find it to kill it if we ever got one in the house. Luckily, we live in a very clean building. They get it sprayed the apartment block outside and stuff like that to keep them out. So. And Sydney gets them. That's the bad thing about Sydney. Sydney gets cockroaches, particularly in the because it's like subtropical weather here. Right. So in the summertime, it gets muggy, it gets humid, um, and you do get them. It slows them down when the weather gets cold in the winter and so forth. Yeah, but when it gets to our warmer weather, yeah, out they come. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah there goes your trip. Your your plans <laughs> to visit Sydney just went out the window. Yeah, it just went out the window. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, it is a wonderful, fantastic, amazing city, and it's beautiful. Yeah, but they, you know, nighttime, you do, in the summertime, you do get those things. But it's, you know, it's mainly around populated areas where there's people, right? Because they're coming around for people's garbage and things that people leave behind. Exactly. So in the city, usually in the cities and places like that. Oh, can't deal with them. Exclusive interview, Justin Jones, producer, American Exorcism. I perform exorcisms, and you need one. Daddy! Are you telling me you don't believe in possession? He's telling me he's trying to believe in. You can be free too, you are not free. On Tuesday, the 2nd of May, 2017, 
I had the opportunity to interview Mr. Justin Jones. Justin Jones is the producer for the upcoming horror film American Exorcism. American Exorcism is the latest release in a slate of horror films that delve onto demonic possession. The synopsis reads as follows. Damon Richard thought he left the world of possessions, exorcisms, and evil behind until an old friend arrives with frightening information about his estranged daughter, knowing that only his otherworldly skills can save her. The film stars Michael Filipowicz, Kate Turnanova, William McKinney, Destiny Mafia. And the film is set to release, well, the film actually released actually on the 2nd of May 2017 across Video On Demand DVD Blu-ray. Um, Ineed, you have watched the film American Exorcism. Uh, please give your insights because I, I have so much to say about this film, uh, but I want to hear from you. What are, what are your thoughts of this film, the protagonist, and the situation of demonic possession? Well, at the beginning of this movie, I was kind of confused because I was trying to kind of figure it out what type of movie I was watching. Because I just see a guy running away from something that looked like it could be a demon. Um, and then there was some type of power going on into I kind of like started like continue watching the movie. Then I just noticed that uh, the person that he was doing whatever had a wife but you know had a wife have kids and stuff like that um what else can i say without giving too much about the movie i don't know how about that <clears throat> protagonist let's talk about that protagonist and that, that had mentioned uh the role of damon uh, portrayed by Michael Filipowicz, uh, to in our interview with Mr. Justin Jones, and uh, let me tell you, that's a really clever modernization of the classic uh, priest doing the rituals of exorcism. Yeah, you see how rugged he looked. He looked like a, a, a Navy SEAL guy. Yes, he did. Kind of bold looking full of hairs in his face and stuff like that yeah hairs in his face that's called a beard <laughs> <laughs> and he had those uh wicked tattoos pretty cool you mean the dem demon tattoos yeah. yeah the demon tattoos the demon symbolisms all over him uh, but one thing i gotta know is that language that he was talking it, it was so funny at first and I that completely turned me off it was just so funny but then it as the movie progressed it made perfect sense that he was talking that language you mean his little chantings yes the little chantings it's, it's pretty clever and uh, his little how you get yeah uh, and let's not get into that <laughs> that was the downfall of the movie was the the, the final moments of act three uh, that's our opinion. Uh, if I wanted to see Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat, I'll play the game. No, but I also, also, um, I didn't know that it takes for you to beat into somebody to beat a demon out of it. There was a part in the movie 
where they're just beating. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. And it was all three of them. Oh, it was the girl right, and then yeah, okay, beating, the, right, beating yes. the demon out of the other guy. Yes, I remember. Yeah, that that was kind of out. That was kind of out there too. I I know. No, yeah. I was like, what the hell? Do you really need to beat the person to beat the demon out of it? Yeah, that that was kind of yeah. I mean, there was some downsides to the film, but overall, the concept was pretty good. It was a modernization of exorcisms. That was pretty cool. So, Stacy, um, I know you're a big fan of de- demonology films and exorcisms. Uh, you checked out the trailer for uh, American uh, Exorcism. What do you think about this? I think it looks really good. As you said, I am a big fan on exorcism films. Um, so I watch just about everyone that comes out. And um, I'm really, I really have high hopes for this one, especially hearing you guys uh, describe it and everything. I can't wait to watch it. Uh, so it looks pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. And like I said, um, the, the main character, I hope they have more story for him because I like the way that the uh, actor portrayed the role. And in the in the interview, I said um, that the the role was very attractive. And in, I mean, not physically attractive. That's that's not what I meant. Got to clarify. I meant the the character itself is very attractive because uh, you have uh, a tough character, very modern. It doesn't follow cliches. And he has a mystery background. We don't know much about this guy, right? No, they really don't say much about him. They just say it about his wife being mad at him for what he is. Yeah, and the beginning didn't give too much information about him. I thought he was just a regular character. That's what I said at the beginning. It was kind of confusing. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of confusing. And uh, the, the trailer, Stacy, if you watch the trailer... Most of the film is explained in, in the trailer, uh, and they give you an insight on the visual effects and how, what they used. Cool. American Exorcism is written and directed by Trip Weathers, and without further ado, here is my interview with Mr. Justin Jones, producer for American Exorcism. Catch it on VOD, DVD, I believe it's Blu-ray as well, released on the 2nd of May, 2017. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ken Artuz, founder and editor for DKMag.com. And joining me this evening is Mr. Justin Jones. Mr. Jones' upcoming film is titled American Exorcism. A supernatural thriller that centers on demonic possession. Uh, thank you for your time, Mr. Mr. Jones. Oh, thank you for having me. And I'll open up with the first question: um, the demonic possession and the, uh, everything that has to do with uh, Mr. Satan possessing people um, is very popular now in the horror genre. Uh, can you give us some insight on the storyline? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as you mentioned, it is very popular, you know, in the horror genre right now. And we wanted to sort of take kind of an interesting bit of a change to make our project a little bit unique 
so we didn't go with sort of the traditional, you know, Catholic priest mm-hmm. trying to save a, you know, young kid or something like that. You know, we went with kind of more of a sort of general approach to sort of mysticism and demonology. Um, and so our lead protagonist, uh, Damon, is kind of more of a shaman-type character uh, and doesn't really believe in um, the tenets of sort of uh, a structured religion uh, like Catholicism and whatnot, but definitely believes in demons and the need to, to fight them um, with his own, you know, crazy mythical ways. Yes, and one of the most intriguing uh, aspects of American exorcism is the lead, the protagonist, uh, portrayed by Michael Filipowicz. I, I, I like this character. He's very modern. Um, was this the approach to attract younger audiences, younger horror-viewing audiences? Absolutely. You know, you, you hit a, a good point there, Ken. It, it definitely was our approach to try to make it not be, you know, your stereotypical you know, priest in a, in a collar and suit, uh, you know, an older man trying to, you know, save, save the day. Uh, we wanted somebody younger, a little bit hip and trendier, and we were really excited when Michael came in to read for us on casting and kind of, you know, uh, blew us away at the audition with just his first read because he's such a uh, – intriguing presence, you know, as an actor, and he brought a lot of his own characteristics and traits directly to this role. Yes, yes. Um, I, okay, let me just deliver it as a question. Um, what is next in store for American Exorcism? Because, I mean, with the, such a rich protagonist such as uh, Damon, uh, do we have anything else in store for him? Yeah, well, I mean, look, we would love to continue on the story of the character and, and obviously his his uh, uh, daughter, you know, played by Kate Tumanova, uh, Caroline in the movie. You know, they're two of the only survivors, you know, at the end of the film, uh, for those of you that have seen it, you know, all the way through. And, you know, if the audience response is uh, sufficient and big and, and, you know, there's interest to see what happens in the next, uh, page of these characters' lives, we would love to continue uh, the story. We already have uh, some ideas of, of where it would go, um, you know, if we get that opportunity to, to make a sequel. Good. That's something to look forward to. And from the production standpoint, how did everything come together um, from the initial script pitch um, until the final cut on the, on the scene? Um, how did everything uh, come together? Yeah, I mean, basically, we work, you know, very closely with one of our distributors, uh, Keith Leopard at Uncorked Entertainment, and we develop all of our properties with everything that we do at Thriller Films, uh, sort of with an eye to where they're going to go in the distribution and sales world. And we wanted to do an exorcism-y type movie, uh, but because our distributor is, is, is very open to working with us, we were able to sort of put these sort of more modern spins on it. And I've got to, you know, sort of tip my hat to the director and writer, Trip Weathers, uh, who came up with the whole story. Like I said, it's an original story all created by him, uh, you know, kind of with just the guidelines of we need a cool, modern exorcism idea. And he sort of ran with it. And we spent uh, a couple of months developing the story together, uh, the producers and the director writer. 
And then finally, when everybody was happy with the script, we went into production and and uh, and started that process. Nice. That's that's very interesting. And being that it's an it's an indie horror film, uh, what were mm-hmm. the complications of this production? Especially since there's a lot of rich uh, computer effects in the in the film. Yeah, we you know with all of the films that we do, we we try to. Uh, look at how we build the properties from the ground up, starting with the script. So, like, go to your last question, as we were working with Trip, the director, to develop the material, we wanted to make sure that we put in things that we knew that we could pull off, even when we were pushing ourselves. Um, and it's funny that you mentioned the VFX, because what originally we thought were going to be about 45 VFX shots in the movie, ended up being 165. Uh, so, that definitely snowballed quite a bit, but we thought it was important to sort of tell kind of a more modern uh, tale or inversion of sort of the exorcism mythos and give the movie that sort of extra production value, even at, you know, a very small indie budget. Cool. Wow. That's a lot of effects. I, I didn't count that many, but uh, yeah. It, ad- it adds up real fast. It, like in the, in just, you know, and just like the scene in Caroline's bedroom where they're sort of, you know, uh, wrestling with her and everything, that I think alone is about 45 shots, you know, because like every angle, you know, as you cut it together, you know, every angle and its reverse becomes an effect shot in some way. So it adds up real fast. And, and um, it's one of the things that you necessarily can't anticipate and plan for from the get-go until you you know, get your final edit and everybody's signed off on it. And then the poor VFX guys are just scratching their heads at how much you've thrown on their table that they have to do in a, in a very rapid time frame. <laughs> and um, this, this next question is a comparison. Uh, most, you know, demonic possession films, they focus on elaborate practical effects. And for sure. American exorcism, it went the the way for computer digital. So, what was the creative direction in infusing computer instead of practical? Yeah, I mean, for us, it's it's twofold. You know, we we kind of did a combination of um, the practical version on the stunt side. You know, we did some wire work. Uh, you know, we had sort of more involved fight scenes, if you will, that you wouldn't find necessarily in like a, your standard sort of exorcism movie. Uh, and then the decision on the practical side was basically we, we, we had some uh, relationships with some VFX artists that were willing to work with us at very reasonable rates. Um, and so we decided to sort of tie in their skill sets in what Trip wanted to do with the story so that we could achieve these sort of bigger, cooler looks. Uh, and so that's kind of the genesis of why we went more heavy on the VFX side as opposed to um, uh, the traditional sort of very heavy practical makeup effects and, and, and all of that stuff. Thank you. And uh, for the demonic possession theme itself, um, like I had mentioned before, it's very popular in the horror field. So what is your stance mm-hmm. on the topic as opposed to a slasher or a typical supernatural film? Well, I, you know, I kind of, me personally as a, as a filmmaker, you know, I, I enjoy horror movies. You know, I wouldn't be making them if I didn't like them. And I kind of lean towards the supernatural 
aspect of the horror mythos and, and horror genres, if you will, as opposed to your standard, you know, four kids go in the woods and get killed by some guy in a mask. Uh, I think it just when you when you involve elements in the supernatural, whether it be demonic possession or a haunted house or you know a spirits or whatever it may be, it gives you so many so many more options as a storyteller to come up with interesting and unique situations that you put your characters in, as opposed to you know people running around because they're scared they're going to get killed by somebody or something. Um, so for us, we try to focus on. First off, coming up with interesting stories and populating them with interesting characters that people can get behind. I definitely agree. I'm I'm up for a good supernatural horror film, as opposed to the typical, as you mentioned, kids in the woods. Yeah, that's tiring. Yeah. <laughs> yes, very, very. And um, to to close out the uh, to interview, I'm curious. Um, the horror genre is most popularly known for female strong female leads, and in American Exorcism, we have the strong male lead. So, what was mm-hmm. the creative direction of using a male instead of a female character? Yeah, I mean, it, again, it, we kind of wanted to subvert you know, the usual expectations of the genre because. Normally, like you mentioned, you'd have a young girl who's like the female lead and you sort of follow her journey. And while we do have, you know, very strong performance in in our actress that played Caroline, Kate Tumanova, the story really is about Michael and and his friendship with uh, the character played by uh, William McKinney, Padre. You know, they very much are the driving force of, of this story. And we wanted to sort of make it be centered around that relationship and, and, and Damon's journey, uh, again, to make it somewhat unique and, and to give it a little bit of a different twist than what people would expect on their average sort of demonic possession exorcism film. Thank you. And out of curiosity, because I've seen the film, reviewed the film, what was uh, Damon speaking in his tongues and that foreign language? What was that? Well, that actually, you know, this is actually one of the things that, you know, Michael, the actor, brought to the role. He, when we cast him, he actually did a lot of research on sort of shamanistic rituals and, uh, you know, witch doctors, medicine men, and all that sort of stuff. And he sort of came up with... um these crazy sort of meditative chants uh, that are based on uh, uh, Tibetan Buddhist monks. So I know it's kind of a long-winded answer, but the actor himself brought that to the table with his own research. And basically, you know, I want to get into this. I want to do this chanting because on the script, it would be like, you know, on the page, it'd be like Damon begins the ritual and starts to exercise the demon. Um, And that's kind of all the description was. And then he sort of went the extra mile and developed his own crazy chanting madness um, with this, this language that, that's based in reality on, uh, you know, aspects of Tibetan uh, Buddhism uh, chants uh, that people use, uh, you know, in that religion. So he sort of appropriated some words and just went crazy with it. <laughs> Oh, wow. It worked out in the film. At, at first, uh, I was skeptical on the delivery. I, th- I found it comical. That was uh, truthful there. 
But as the yeah. story progresses, it made sense. I'm like, oh, okay, it does make well, sense. I think it's it's because he is so committed to it, you know, as as a character and as an actor, he makes it believable. You know, he makes it feel just like you were saying that it makes sense for this world. Um, and I, you know, I, I, you know, we constantly were giving him, you know, credit on set for, you know, pushing it that extra mile to make it be that unique. Definitely. And um, the platform is open. Um, would you please share what else you have, upcoming projects, uh, some more information on the American exorcism that we have not covered, and anything else you need to, add, uh, particularly with social media links and so on and so forth? Yeah, we're, we're actually ramping up our uh, company website, which is going to go live in about uh, five to six days. So if, uh, you know, if anyone wants to check out any of our other titles, uh, you know, please go to uh, thrillerfilms.net where you will see uh, not only more information on American Exorcism, but a lot of our upcoming features. We're actually in post-production right now on three other titles um, and multiple titles that are, that are already done that are going to be re releasing throughout the year. Uh, next up is a uh, sort of social media-based horror movie called uh, Captured, which is kind of uh, has a similar bent to uh, Unfriended, uh, if you saw that film, but ours is more of a, you know, traditional sort of horror take on it. Um, and then we've got a fun movie about uh, witches, and then a uh, it's called Coven, which is going to release uh, later in the fall. And then we have another film that's in post-production uh, that's kind of based on the very popular uh, Escape Room phenomena uh that title is called uh, escape puzzle of fear and we're very excited about that title as it has uh some really good acting in it i'm really happy with the script uh and the way that that one turned out and we were able to get some great actors attached to it uh nicholas Taturo, who people might know from nypd blue uh and then omar gooding from a million tv shows and, and nickelodeon and all of that um are, are two of the male leads in, in that particular film, uh, Escape, Puzzle of Fear. So there's a lot going on for Thriller Films this year, and we're, we're very excited to see what the, uh, the future brings. Awesome. That, that's something to definitely look forward to. Fantastic. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, and thank you for this uh, amazing film, uh, American Exorcism. Uh, it's it's very good fine milking uh, film making, um, as I had mentioned. I'm totally attracted to the the protagonist, very strong, powerful lead, and I hope to see more of, of this character in the future. Awesome, Ken. Thank you so much for your time, and we'll keep you updated on all of our future projects. Thank you, thank you. Uh, best of luck to your endeavors. All right, you too, sir. Thank you. Exclusive interview, actress Samantha Stewart Voodoo. I fell in love with him, though. And his wife, man, she was so scary. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't believe in that kind of, like, voodoo stuff, but oh, there was something about her, man. I mean, she started, like, speaking in this weird language, then her, like, eyes started rolling in the back of her head. <laughs> Trust me, it was scary. You would have been scared, too.
Voodoo released just in February of this year, and it's getting more and more raids, especially for me because I'm such a big fan of the film. Voodoo is written and directed by Tom Costable. It follows Danny, portrayed by Samantha Stewart, who travels to California to visit and vacation with her cousin Stacy, portrayed by Ruth Reynolds. Their fun soon takes a drastic turn when Danny stumbles upon a dark altar and becomes thrust into a nightmare. I had the honor and the pleasure of headlining this coverage of the amazing film, and I couldn't be more thrilled. First with the film review, then with the mastermind behind the film, writer and director Tom Costable, then with star actress Ruth Reynolds, and now with star actress Samantha Stewart. In my candid interview with Samantha Stewart, she talks about her preparation for her role in Voodoo, as well as some intriguing behind the scenes stories. She talks about how she transitioned into horror and she shares her opinion on the theme of demonic possession in the horror circuit. Uh, Ken, Anid, have you guys watched uh, Voodoo yet? And what is your take on this movie? You know I rave about it so much. I love it. I want to hear what you guys think about it now. Uh, see, I'm taking a page out of your book. I still haven't seen Voodoo. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I still haven't seen it. Hey, I, I've had such a busy week. Um reviewing these other films that are, is kind of backlogged so apologies to everybody that i'm kind of backlogged on reviewing your film uh but voodoo is on my to-do list like i want to just sit down watch it enjoy it uh found footage I, i've read your review stacy and i've seen the trailer so i know it's a found footage film and most people would would complain because it has voodoo uh cliches but uh if you if you could reimagine uh, something that's been done over and it's tired and it make it good then yeah a credit to to the production team well i'm gonna take a page out of the book too because if mr artus haven't seen it i haven't seen it either <laughs> Stay yeah. it takes the two of us to see a movie together and to review it yeah <laughs> that's usually the um, case and don't forget um possible he did say that it's part found footage part traditional um it's actually really good and um i was going to say that uh i love how he mixes the two together because uh, it's not like completely found footage so it's, it's actually really nice and as i've said before like earlier um as all like found footage films go, it starts off a little, it starts off kind of soft, but it doesn't take that long to like lead into it. So you're not, you know, lingering for too long. And then when you, you know, get into the main, you know, the, the action and everything, it's like, wow, it really takes off. Yeah, I really hate those found footage films. Right, Anid? Look at that paranormal activity films that, you know, the, the, especially the last one, look at that garbage. Nah, talk about that witch, whatever movie that they did in the woods. The Blair Witch? Yeah. That's worse. Yeah, it was worse. I mean, that's considered to be one of the first found footage. And uh, it's... Uh, no. The, the, no, no good. The best one, in my opinion, is Wreck. <coughs> and the way Stacy's describing voodoo, it reminds me of that last... Well, the second to last um, part of the franchise for Wreck. 
that it starts out as found footage and then it goes into a traditional film uh yeah that i could dig i could dig that yeah but yeah stacy unfortunately we're gonna take a page out of your book we haven't seen it. hey hey you already know i got many pages it's a novel long so. <laughs> <laughs> that's true yeah you have to catch up you do have to catch up i'm at a novel now of how many movies i have to watch so <laughs> wow but this is one of this is one film that we completely spearheaded from we interviewed Tom Constable, uh, the director uh, for Voodoo, and actors involved. We also tackled the film review, one of the first uh, online news sources that tackled the film review for Voodoo. And uh, yeah, this is what this is. Uh, a pleasure to cover films such as this and even i recently uh, saw on google uh, well actually through my feed actually that i uh, believe it was Cisco, uh, ebert uh, one of the major uh critics gave it a thumbs up for voodoo that's very rare for a horror film what do you think about that stacy that's pretty cool Oh, I think it's awesome because as you mentioned like not too many good found footage films out here I mean you have a few rare 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 gems out of the bunch you know and when I watched Voodoo you know when it first started off I'm just like okay when are we gonna get to that and then when it finally got into it I was like okay here we go it's, it's starting now and it just took off and I was like amazed I was amazed because also this is one this is probably the first found footage film that I've seen like get into the path that it gets into I mean not just the demonic possession uh aspect of it but how brutal it was how you know how graphic it was and everything this is probably the first found footage film I saw that tackles that usually they're like running through the forest or through the woods from some an identified, you know what I'm saying, accomplice. And it's like, okay, what are, where are you running from? Who are you running from? And most of them never show what it is, you know, until like the very end, the last few minutes and you get a glimpse. You're lucky to get a glimpse, but you never really see exactly what it is. Yeah, that is so true. I hate films like those. I despise, <clears throat> I, I don't consider found footage film to be uh, a talent, quality, uh, production quality I think anybody could just pick up their phone and do a found footage film even if you're using a uh, high-end uh, video camera a DSLR or cinema red still found footage is the least uh, of talents right correct me if I'm wrong yeah found footage yeah unfortunately it is yeah. at times at times there's this uh, let's not judge all books by cover no 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 that's how i mentioned wreck found footage it was great yeah, so yeah we have the exception but uh and i may note stacy your review of voodoo is on imdb.com and it's on listings on the critics so congrats to you on that very notable uh commendation and I also need to inject that Tom Constable is the writer as well as the director. Uh, very, very intriguing film. So if you haven't checked it out, just like us, Anita and I, uh, please do check it out. 
And here is my interview with Samantha Stewart. This is Stacey Cox, staff correspondent for DKMag.com. Joining me today is actress Samantha Stewart. Ms. Stewart plays Danny in the horror film Voodoo, which released in February of this year. Ms. Stewart, I want to thank you for taking the time to meet with me today. Thank you for having me. You had a pretty intense role in Voodoo. What was your ritual for preparing for this role? Um, I mean, I wouldn't say there was necessarily a ritual. Um, the shooting conditions were very difficult. So just like kind of being in the midst of, of uh, you know, really long days and really hard days um, really kind of helped me get into character. It wasn't, it wasn't very difficult to kind of find myself in a state of, um, you know, just being tired and, and hurt and all of that, and which it just really helped prepare for the role. I definitely understand that. Horror Cinema plays host as for powerful female leads. What's your opinion on this topic and how does your role in voodoo fits its being? The theme of, of powerful female roles in yeah film. Yeah, you know, like uh, female domination and horror cinema, as we've noticed this trend that's coming along. Um, well, it's definitely a female-driven film. You know, the two main actors are both female. And um, it's, you know, for that reason, I think it's definitely, uh, there's not really many male characters even in the film. Um, so there definitely is that, you know, idea of female driven performances, which I think is nice. Um, and, you know, despite, despite Danny going through this like really traumatic experience at the end, I think she is a strong character and she tends to have hope even in the most horrible situations. I think she still thinks she's somehow going to come out on the other side of it. So, um, I think both female characters in the in the film are very strong. It's said that horror films are physically intense. Uh, what, were there any taxing moments in any of your horror products or projects, voodoo included? Definitely. I mean, the whole shoot was very taxing, but especially those hell scenes. Um, we we kept having a lot of technical issues, you know, with the camera or building the set. Um, there was not a ton of rehearsal, um, you know, I, I was constantly getting physically kind of beat up during the shoot days. There'd be really, really long shoot days where I'd be up until, you know, 7 a.m. after having gotten to set at 10 a.m. the previous day. And, um, one time I got punched in the face by one of the actors accidentally, and you know was stepped on by this really big man and like crushed my foot and um it was definitely one of those kind of i don't know if you'd call it guerrilla filmmaking but definitely uh you know just everything that was going on was just very taxing uh, for me as an actor and um it was definitely the most difficult film i've ever done to date Oh my, I can imagine. And what in your opinion, as far as the film goes, um, stands out as the most intense moment in voodoo? Um, probably the rape scene was very intense. It was 
it was very difficult to film um, to, you know, put myself in that mindset. Um, they also, at the very last minute, told me that I needed to be topless for it, which, you know, was literally just maybe 20 minutes before we shoot, they made that decision. So it was a lot to kind of go through um, for me. And I think it's a lot to go through when you're watching the film because all these horrible things happen to her. And then it leads up to this kind of climactic, really disturbing scene at the end. Like you don't even think it can get worse and then it does. So um, I'd probably say that was the most kind of traumatic moment of the film. I can definitely imagine that. And I've always said like, uh, you know, rape and sexual assault and all that. That's probably one of my most sensitive subjects when it comes to uh, film, horror cinema. I mean, any kind of cinema is that. And, you know, any violence against children and animals and everything. Those are probably like my most sensitive subjects. So I can definitely understand that. Yeah, and you kind of had two of those. You had violence against children in the very beginning of the movie where that that little girl's killed and then the rape scene at the end. It was definitely um it was I feel like it was needed for the film, but it was hard to go through for sure. Yes. What is your overall opinion on demon possession films and how they have progressed throughout the decades? Um I mean yeah, I, I mean, if you look back at kind of like The Exorcist, you know, you have that kind of like child progress, uh, possession. And then in our film, it was kind of my cousin who got possessed. Um, I feel like in in horror, though, they they don't really shy away from, from anything. I mean, if you've got, you know, back in the 70s with The Exorcist, a child getting possessed and, you know, uh, all these horrible things that happened to her in that film. And I just, I feel like, horror films in general are never ones to shy away from anything that's uh, difficult to watch. And that's what I kind of like about them. They really have like no fear. Um, so I wouldn't say that they've necessarily changed that much. They're just whatever's in the director's head, like they're not afraid to show that. Yes, I can definitely see that. There have been some pretty intense demon possession films, voodoo included. It's probably one of my favorite uh, films, by the way, I rave about it a lot. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, you're no stranger to the horror circuit. It looks like your debut horror film was Twelve, Twelve, Twelve. Is that right? Yeah, that was a fun one. Um, I had worked with that director on a previous film, and then he brought me in to do kind of a small role for Twelve, Twelve, Twelve. But it was a very, uh, it was an interesting story about this woman giving birth kind of to the spawn of Satan. And then, uh, so this baby was kind of like, you know, um, responsible for all these deaths throughout the film. And, and I'm a police officer who is taking this baby, you know, to the precinct or whatever. And um, the baby ends up using his powers to kind of strangle me in the car with the seatbelt. So it was like a, uh, it was a fun scene where I had to, you know, act like the seatbelt was strangling me and uh, my character was killed, obviously. So that was a fun one. Ah, see, I got to, I have to watch. So is it kind of like, um, has a feel of the omen going on to it? Yes, it definitely was, was uh, inspired by that film, I believe. Oh. Now, as I look through your filmography history, you've actually, 
did in several television series and in, like that specialized in drama, comedy, and romance. Can you share your acting career so far and how did you transition into horror? Um, I, I yeah, I, I don't really have any genres that I particularly try to focus on. Um, you know, I, I grew up doing the plays, plays in community theater and uh, regional commercials and that kind of thing when I lived in Tennessee. And then um, I went to Pepperdine University and got my um, bachelor's degree in theater. And then from then on, I I pretty much just wasn't even picky about the stuff that I did. I just uh, would submit to everything that came across my way and um, whatever I was given the opportunity to do, I just kind of did to the best of my ability. And that included, you know, soap operas and um, comedy and tons of commercials, um, uh, you know, silly little TNA movies, um, you know, that are on Netflix and and uh, Voodoo just happened to, you know, pop up on my computer. I submitted for it and um, uh, auditioned, and then I booked it. So, you know, it wasn't something that I was, like, striving to do horror. It just kind of came my way, and I was grateful for the job at the time. Awesome. And what do you? Uh, how about the future? Do you see yourself taking on more horror-themed projects in the future, or in the, are there any other horror-related projects coming up in the future? Yeah, there's a, a horror film that I'm going to be doing in the next year um, that actually shoots in Peru. It's called The Mystery of the Casa Matasita, um, which is based on a true story of this kind of haunted building in Peru. And the movie uh, stars Malcolm McDowell from Clockwork Orange. So I'm really excited to work on that film. Um, they're kind of in the last stages of uh, funding right now, but hopefully that'll get up off the ground soon. And I, I mean, I would love to work in horror. I, I think um, I, I could scream for a long time and that kind of thing like plays well in horror films. And um, I, I'm not like actively seeking another horror project, but I definitely would not shy away from it if it came my way. That is very exciting. I can't wait for that. Well, Ms. Stewart, the platform is open. Please share your social media and any information where we can tune in and keep up to date on any upcoming projects. Yeah, um, I've got a, a few commercials coming out definitely to look for, um, Skechers and Home Advisor uh, and Rover. And then I've got a crime reenactment show called Deadly Sins coming out on um, Discovery ID. That should be out in the next few months. And uh, you can feel free to check out my website. It's uh, com. My Instagram is the Samantha Stewart. And then I have a, a Facebook fan page that I try to keep updated. So those are the main places where you can find me. Thank you so much, Ms. Stewart. Uh, my name is Stacy Cox, staff correspondent for DKMag.com. And I would like to thank you again for taking the time to meet with me. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Exclusive interview. Ernest Farino, the monster of dread and crowdfunding. Monster of Dread Inn, the future film adaptation, has initiated its crowdfunding campaign. This first phase for the project pitch can be found on Kickstarter. 
there's still 17 days left to go in the campaign. To show your support for the project, please visit kickstarter.com and search Ernest Farino or The Monster of Dread Inn. The Monster of Dread Inn is originally a comic written by John Stanley and illustrated by Ed Robbins. It was published in Dale Comics' Ghost Stories collection. The Monster of Dread Inn centers the happy town of Dread Inn that's plagued by a mysterious unknown entity that's snatching up unsuspecting people from thin air. They call it the Monster of Dread Inn, but no one really knows for sure what or who it is. Fast forward years later, Jimmy, whose sister became the first victim of the monster, is now a young teenager and has decided to venture to Dread Inn on a mission of vengeance to catch the culprit responsible for his sister's death years ago. To his surprise, he witnesses a giant claw-like hand creep out of the manhole and stretches up a building in search of something. Maybe it's next victim. Ernest Farino has decided to adapt Stanley's original comic into a feature film. Farino is notable for several iconic films, including The Terminator, The Thing, and Screamers, just to name a few. It's really exciting that he is behind this project as we have seen great things from him. It's interesting to note that Farino has mainly dwelled in visual effects side of things in cinema production. The Monster of Dread Inn is one of few projects that he hopefully will write and direct. In Farino's adaptation to the story, the original story becomes act one of the feature screenplay. Flash forward 15 years to find Jimmy, now 30, experiencing recurring nightmares about the creature. Haunted by the incident, he becomes obsessed. Somehow his sister may still be alive. The origin of the creature was never resolved and Jimmy becomes determined to go back and solve the mystery. I had the pleasure of a very insightful interview with Ernest Farino. He gives great insight on the story or on the history of the Monster of Dread Inn and his inspiration for the project. He details how he plans to approach and attack the feature production in all technical aspects. Again, please visit kickstarter.com and search Ernest Farino or the Monster of Dread Inn to show your support for this project and bring it to life. Anit, Ken, have you guys read the story, the original comic, and what do you guys think about this? Yes, I read some of the story. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I liked it. I mean, into towards the end when I figured out that it was just a big claw. I wonder where is the rest of the body for that claw? <laughs> You're funny. It's true. All you see is just a giant claw wrapping around a building trying to catch the, you know, poor old Jimmy. And and where's the rest? The You know, where's the rest of the claw? It's just the claw. Where's the body? You know, that's a very interesting uh, opinion because if the claw is that long, how did he fit inside the sewer? Exactly. Yeah, but of course, this is comic books, and you have to bend reality in comic books. Not really. 
yeah really because come on uh, uh, a creature that big I, I, don't, I don't know I don't know it's kind of weird and what was the purpose of this claw taking all these kids maybe the maybe the the creature was hungry he wanted to eat children then that makes him a cannibal no he's not he's not human well if he eats children he eats a cannibal no that's carnivore carnivore, carnivore. <laughs> <laughs> uh stacy did you read the comic uh how was this i know you you at the time you interviewed mr farino you did not read the comic uh, yes, uh, when I interviewed him, I haven't read it, but I found it. When I did a Google search, I found it, and I quickly read it. And it's actually a really good story. Um, it's very, it's a lot of mystery there. Again, all you see is this uh, claw. You see these long, you know, this long arm and everything, but you never actually see the creature. You never see the creature. And as he, uh, Mr. Perino, has mentioned, the creature is never shown, is never resolved and everything so when going into this project hopefully it gets done uh going into this project isn't he actually supposed to reveal the creature as, <laughs> as he was uh saying in the interview right <laughs> yeah <laughs> what happened to you what the... imagine the creature has a very small little body and just such a big hands <laughs> <laughs> that would be funny <laughs> Wow. Yeah, I, I was actually kind of hoping that in the comic, you know, the creature will be shown, um, or in the yeah, in the comic, the creature will be shown, but they don't show the creature. All they show is the hand. And it's kind of like looking at a shadow. You know, you hope the shadow would appear, or you hope the shadow would bring itself to life, but it never does. But yeah. that's so, one perverted hand, though. Yeah. He likes yeah. to be grabbing and touching kids. <laughs> you yeah. Buddy. So the story really is more of a mystery than anything. Yes. It really is. You know, it really and got it me. And it leaves a lot hanging. It just leaves a lot to question. Yeah, she said a little lot hanging. Yeah, that's it, yeah, it leaves a lot to question. It's like, well, what is it and why? You know, it doesn't answer any of that. Why take kids? Why not adults? Yeah. Why always yeah, why has to be kids? Well, you know, in that time. Uh, we don't know what was going on during the era that this comic book released probably there was some social situation involving children uh, we don't know about probably a lot of missing kids were going on in that era so you, every horror film or horror medium always touches on something that happens in, in social uh, in social standings so probably uh, during this era, there was a lot of missing kids, and they created this monster. You know? Yeah, I know who took them—the aliens. Aliens, always good. But this doesn't look like an alien. This, well, if you look at the hand, this looks like an alligator or some type of reptile. Wow, that's such a big alligator hand. <gasps> wow. Yes. It's the creature with a thousand eyes. I know, yes. right? It's an alligator that has eyes all over and hands all over. Wow. But let me tell you, the thing that really... The dialogue in the comic book was so funny because it's it's such a throwback to and to an era. It's, it sounds corny, you know, when you read it. But it's like, okay, you have to understand, is it the era of that time? And that was a, the... We're talking about 1960. Yeah. Wow. That's a flashback right there. We weren't born then. No, no, we are not that young. 
And nowadays, you see comics, like, they reveal everything. Now, they reveal it all. <laughs> yeah, no comics these days, especially Dark Horse comics and Heavy Metal, uh, the anthology comic book series, they really go out there with the content. I mean, they show nudity and violence. Yeah, sometimes you want that casual, you know, mystery, just like how this this comic book is dead end. Pretty, pretty cool. Pretty interesting. Very good to see uh, uh, something being remade uh, for modern times. And f uh, Mr. Farino, he wants to do everything practical effects, correct? Yes, and the stop motion animation, right? Yes, that is wow. That is amazing. Um, indeed, you know what stop motion animation? Remember that animated series with the sheep? that we had seen I believe so yeah that's stop motion just to make that film you, you gotta imagine the work just to go into that I know wow In incredible uh, so yeah so this crowdfunding is for a pitch for this idea for this film it's incredible uh, if uh, the audiences <laughs> find that this is a very interesting project and they want to back it just head on over to kickstarter and uh, also you could gather some basic information on the project on the article accompanying this podcast and any closing remarks here stacy for this uh segment nope i just say uh, it's a very great idea and as far as I, this is the first time it's being adapted into a feature film right yeah yeah never never seen this before yeah so that makes it even more exciting so um it's a very great idea it's an exciting idea and i really hope that this goes um so please to support this visit kickstarter.com search ernest farino or the monster of dread in and show your project there's still a few days left here is my interview with ernest farino this is Stacey Cox, staff correspondent for DKMag.com. Joining me today is writer and director Ernest Farino. His latest project, The Monster of Dread Inn, is in the crowdfunding phase on Kickstarter. Ernie, I would like to thank you for meeting me today. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Does the film adaptation to the 1962 The Monster of Dread Inn stay true to the original comics? Well, that's our that's our goal. Uh, I have wanted to uh, adapt this uh, comic story ever since I first read it. I read it as a kid when the comic came out, and I was enthralled with it. I wasn't thinking in film terms in those days, but uh, over the past uh, oh, I don't know, ten or fifteen or twenty years, I it was always in the back of my mind, and I could never figure out how to expand a 10-page comic story into a feature film and my artist friend uh, Pete Von Schale who uh, did his own version of the comic uh, uh, back in the late 90s he actually came up with the answer which is to treat the uh, story the original story that's in the comic as quote unquote act one in uh, the feature screenplay so we start off with that and then, uh, so that'll take up the you know first half hour of the of the movie, and then we flash forward 
to 15 years later in the story, and the, the boy who's in the original story is now grown up, and he's become obsessed with going back to Dread End to figure out, you know, where this monster came from and solve the mystery of what was going on. And so I think that's a really good uh, approach to it because uh, we don't have to pad out the original story and water it down or anything. We just keep it as is. And I think the fans of the comic book will will be pleased with that because they don't have to wait to the end of the movie or the you know the the all stretched all the way through the movie to uh, experience uh, the the uh, adaptation of the, of the original comic. So uh, I think that's going to work out uh, really well. I think that's a great idea. And speaking of the original comics, um, I've never read them. Uh, so do they? Um... Like say in the original comics where the monster originates, or would that be something new as you're uh, doing this production? Well, that that was one of the intriguing aspects of the original story, and I think that uh, creeped out a lot of uh, uh, kids like me is, <coughs> excuse me, that uh, the monster is never explained. Uh, the story, uh, which was in uh, Dell Comics uh, Ghost Stories number one uh, in 1962. Uh, as written by John Stanley, it simply ends, and the the uh, police uh, finally converge on the monster and blast it to smithereens, and so you have these shreds of tentacle lying about the street, and there it ends with them looking down into the manhole with the uh, uh, in the street, with uh, you know horrified looks on their faces, and that's it, the end, and and so it's this great ambiguous ending. Which of course fired up, you know, the imagination of uh, the the reader of the comic to say, "Oh my God, what what is that thing, and where did it come from?" And it was a great uh, asset to uh, the the story itself. And so, building upon that, that you know, would would be the idea that the kid now grown up go, with perhaps some of his friends uh, goes back to Dread End and goes down into the sewers and caverns and whatnot to explore and find out, you know, what, what was going on here, you know? So, uh, I think that'll be an interesting aspect to, uh, explore in the expanded uh, film. And how could modern technologies be used to recreate the plot? Well, I'm going to actually go, uh, a little old school it's not really old school it's still being done quite a bit with uh, stop motion model animation which of course harkens back to the original uh, king kong in 1933 and then the films of ray harryhausen such as uh, the seventh voyage of sinbad and uh, jason and the argonauts and the original clash of the titans and i i always believe i've always been a fan of stop motion i've done stop motion animation myself and I always feel that uh, uh, the use of a, of a physical model is uh, preferable in so many ways, uh, in my mind, uh, modern CGI. There's a lot of great animation and effects work being done in CGI, so I'm not here to bash CGI. And as a visual effects supervisor in the past, I've utilized uh, CGI technology quite a bit on the Dune and Children of Dune miniseries and so on. 
But I think that the stop-motion approach uh, will be very effective in this way to give a, a physical sort of tactile feel to the monster. But we can also then uh, take it one step further and utilize modern technology to add uh, blurs to the stop motion to uh, simulate uh, handheld camera work uh, to uh, in compositing, for example, with live action backgrounds. <clears throat> digital technology is uh, perfect, basically. It, it allows you to composite uh, with the live action in a, in a just a very clean, perfect way, as opposed to older technologies of optical printing and rear projection and things like that. So, it, it will definitely be a uh, an effective uh, combination of uh, technology and techniques that uh, I think is the best of both worlds. Thank you. And while we're on stop motion, it seems like it's such a time consuming process has much changed on this form of animation to speed up the workflow. Well, not really. I think that uh, it's it's not as uh, time consuming as as you think. I, uh, you know, it, <coughs> excuse me. Um, uh, those of us who have done it realize that once you get into it, it it. You know, it is frame by frame and everything, but <clears throat> the advantage there is that you, you have the animator uh, handling the puppet directly and manipulating it and bringing uh, characterization and everything to it. All visual effects take a certain amount of time. There's no question about it. And while production schedules and post-production schedules have become compressed uh, more and more over the recent uh decades, let's say, those time periods get shorter and shorter uh, as imposed by studios and so on. Uh, it's still a very doable uh, scenario. And you, if, if you begin with uh, skilled, experienced people and talented animators who know how to get in there and, and get the job done and, and do a, a really good job of it as well uh, right along, then you know it's all going to work out. Uh, you know, in the end, I've worked on projects where, for example, the um, uh, HBO miniseries from the Earth to the Moon, the Tom Hanks uh, series from the late '90s about the Apollo space program, where I was the visual effects uh, supervisor and producer, and I was on that project for a year and a half. So you know, things can still take a certain amount of time. I don't think this project is going to take a year and a half, but because uh, that was a twelve-part miniseries. But you know, it, it it you do what you have to do, and uh, that will all be uh, calculated and worked in and and scheduled and budgeted accordingly. Thank you. And in the worst case, um, the monster dread and the project is not fully financed through Kickstarters. What will be the next steps on how you will proceed with the production? Well, the goal of the Kickstarter project that we've launched right now is to finance the development of what I'm calling a pitch package. And uh, it's explained in the video and in the campaign. But basically, in order to seek financing for a professional independent feature film, uh, you you need to have a, a screenplay, you need to have a budget and a schedule and a breakdown. We would also produce a trailer 
professionally with professional actors and cinematographer and so on that would be presented to potential investors and distributors and and studios uh along with uh a mock up of what might be the one sheet poster artwork and you know the whole package to say okay here's the movie and <clears throat> you can do all of this yourself of course uh but this way we can do it in a focused compressed uh time frame in order to then <clears throat> take that package and go out to uh investors and distributors and studios and production companies and try and raise uh you know the money I, and i don't know for uh, the money for the feature film and I, I i haven't settled yet because we haven't gone through this process i haven't settled yet on what that budget will be i expect it will be in the neighborhood of i don't know five to fifteen million dollars for the feature film which is mm -hmm you know to do it upright and do it uh, professionally uh, like a regular movie and uh not <clears throat> not a low end direct to video kind of uh, production uh, type of thing um and uh what was i going to say um uh so so we want to be able to present uh the the whole uh project in in a way that becomes appealing to uh, the people who would be putting up the money so the next step to answer your question, I'll, I'll circle back and, and and answer exactly what you asked. The next step, if we are successful with the Kickstarter campaign, would be for me to sit down and write the full screenplay. And I intend to go through several drafts, take the time to go through several drafts and get professional script coverage and notes and, and all of that to make it as good as it possibly can be, get feedback from any number of people, and uh and then based on that uh a uh we would have a professional breakdown uh shooting schedule and uh, production budget created which is a very intricate elaborate process and simultaneously be gearing up to uh uh prepare or have the the uh, trailer and uh produce the the 3 minute promo trailer and the poster artwork and all that kind of stuff. So uh, uh, all of this would be worked out in a very precise calendar uh, so that we could uh, end up with uh, the complete package. Thank you. And your cast and crew, you got some pretty notable names here alongside yourself, of course, uh, some really great names in the industry. Um, is this all like a set cast and crew or any of these names like pending well it's it's all pending of course because we we haven't uh completed the kickstarter campaign and if it is successful and i hope it will be uh then of course we would lock down all of the participants in the cast and crew i have contacted everybody who's listed in the campaign in the cast and crew, and everybody has jumped on board very enthusiastically, and they're very excited. In many cases, I've worked with most of these people, the composer, the cinematographer, most of the actors uh, in the past, and and so, you know, I think that uh, helped a lot, you know, in terms of people knowing me and, and having worked together. So I think it's a good, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
list of uh, or or uh, team, uh, you know, of of casting crew. Now, having said that, if by the time we get down the line in August or thereabouts <clears throat> to produce the trailer, if there are scheduling conflicts, well, then we'll have to roll, you know, deal with that as the time comes, and we may have to. Some people may have to uh, bow out. That that's always the case, even in in uh, you know regular uh, feature production. You know, you you try and cast and and crew people, but if they have other commitments. But by and large, uh, people have generally said, "Yep, I'm I'm with you." Uh, you know, if everything works out, then uh, uh, let's do it. And once I have written the screenplay, the full feature screenplay, from that, I will then extract scenes and moments and shots and whatever that will make up the promo trailer. So then I'll have a much more focused idea as to what the characters are that I need and what the demands are in the production in terms of sets and locations and all of that. So uh, we'll storyboard it, uh, the trailer, so we know exactly what we need in terms of the animation of the claw monster and uh, work it out uh, in the full professional process. But, yes, uh, everybody is, is very excited about it, uh, uh, you know, and, and I think it's going <clears> to <throat> come together to be a really uh, a good group uh, to, to make something that's really stand out. Thank you. I'm very excited. It sounds like a very exciting project and just reading about it makes me want to go and read the comics myself. This is the first time I've heard of it, so I'm definitely going to look them up. Um, and what about the musical score? Uh, what kind of score are you looking for for the for the film? For the film or the trailer or both? Or, or both. Well, the trailer, the film, like what kind of musical score are you looking for? Oh. Well, um... My composer friend, John Massari, who uh, uh, did the music score for uh, a movie I did uh, some years back called Steel and Lace, which is a, a female robot sci-fi movie that was uh, uh, successful at the time. Uh, and he also scored uh, an episode of the syndicated series Monsters that I directed. And John has... Uh, done a whole bunch of uh, stuff, uh, the Ray Bradbury Theater and uh, Walt Disney Productions and <clears throat> all kinds of things over the years, including his own classical style music, uh, suites and, and so on. And so he's going to pull together, excuse me, I'm sorry, uh, he's going to pull together uh, a live uh, orchestra and uh, uh, be able to, you know, as opposed to you know an electronic synthesized score, and I think this will uh, be a tremendous asset to the trailer and then the feature itself. So the uh, you know I I'm obviously uh, having come from a background of being a fan of uh, science fiction and so on. I uh, in in my visual effects work and everything else. You know, I I am inclined to like the type of music of uh, Bernard Herrmann and some of the classic composers, uh, film scores, Jerry Goldsmith, uh, John Williams, Miklos Rosa, and uh, so you know we're going to go for a a uh, a traditional robust 
uh, you know, dynamic music score that uh, I think will, uh, you know, just be a really uh, important part of the movie. So many, uh, so many um, films, especially in uh, the horror, science fiction, fantasy, thriller genre, are enhanced so much by uh, a really good music score. In the fantasy realm, you've got Bernard Herrmann having done the score to Ray Harryhausen's Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Bernard Herrmann also, of course, did many scores for Alfred Hitchcock, uh, Psycho, uh, North by Northwest, and others. And so you have, you know, if you have that component as part of the film and you you explore that to uh as best you can and and whatnot i think uh you know that really adds a tremendous quality to um uh the film but i think it's also important and this is why i brought john on board and he's been really excited about doing uh the the trailer as well because the whole idea of the promo trailer is to present it to as I said earlier, investors and studios, and it basically that's what they're going to look at first. And so that's really got to grab them, you know. So I think that, it, you know, by put, applying some of the Kickstarter funding to doing a an original orchestrated music score that has mood and suspense and atmosphere and, and all the excitement that it music score can bring to the uh, show, then I think we're way ahead of the game in terms of our objective with the trailer. Thank you. And speaking of visual effects, your career in the visual effects medium is influential and and amazing. Oh. Uh, okay. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, you work on quite a few notable films, some of my favorites as well. You're good. In your expert well, I, well, as I like to say, I only did the parts you like. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, no, no. You're you're awesome. You're very amazing. Your work oh, is you. amazing. In your expert opinion, where do you see effects working developing in the next twenty years? Oh my goodness. <clears throat> I don't think about the next twenty days uh, much <laughs> much less. Uh, well, you know, the fact is, I think that uh, with the advent of digital technology and CGI, uh, visual effects work has taken a giant leap forward uh, progressively. Uh, these things, an emerging technology always takes a certain time to uh, develop and uh, refine itself and uh, all of that. But nevertheless, we're at a point right now where I can't say that it has peaked, but we're at a pretty darn high level of uh, quality and expertise. And one of the advantages, I'll give you an example. It used to be uh, back in the uh, the good old days where I would be a visual effects supervisor and I would have to tell a director uh, no, this is going to be a matte painting, so it has to be a static shot of what we called the lock off you know because you, you because it was going to be composited optically and whatnot you couldn't do a, a a camera move or a pan or something you could do a to a certain limited extent but it was added a, a, a you know a specific complication to to the shot and so 
sometimes we were very restricted in in uh how we would uh, do those things whereas nowadays <clears throat> there's motion tracking software and uh motion control and so on and so basically it has totally freed up uh the uh, uh the as moving camera and uh uh, tracking shots and uh you know all of that kind of stuff and so um excuse me i keep getting beeped here but uh and uh, uh so now there's much greater flexibility in terms of uh you know uh the the for from the director's standpoint in terms of what you're you're not inhibited anymore i'm sorry i'm stumbling i've been beeping on the phone here uh, I don't know who's calling, but um, in any event, uh, so you have a, that's just one example of how things have been freed up by the advent of digital technology, and uh, you know there there's many other advantages too. So I think that it's hard to say where it's going to go in in 20 years. There's now there's virtual reality. Certainly, there's been 3D, the advent of uh, 3D in a very effective way uh you know as opposed compared to when 3D was introduced back in the 1950s you know you you jump forward and you compare that with something like avatar which has you know tremendous uh 3D uh imagery in it you know so there there and and who knew you know 20 years ago who knew that the 3D was going to advance to the levels as seen in avatar for example so it's very difficult to predict you know, uh, that far ahead of time because uh, now they've got, of course, uh, virtual reality headsets and everything. So it may be that we we don't ever perceive movies the the conventional way that we're looking at movies today. I mean, you know, it, it's just uh, very difficult to, to say uh, one way or the other. But I think that that advances are being made all the time, and it's a very exciting uh, uh, world to be in, frankly. Thank you so much. And I definitely agree with uh, those points that you made. Well, Ernie, the platform is open. Please share your social media and the information where we can tune in and keep up to date on any upcoming projects, including the Monster of Dreadman. I'm sorry, I missed the first part of that. What What did you want me to do? The platform is open. Can you please share your social media and any information where we can tune in and keep up to date on any upcoming projects, including the Monster of Dread Inn? Well, <clears throat> I'm not sure how to do that over the phone. Uh, you know, you can go to Kickstarter and uh, search for that project. You can go to my Facebook page, uh, Ernest Farino, or my publishing company, Archive Editions. Uh, and there are links to the Kickstarter project regarding the Monster of Dread End. And uh, so I'm hoping that people will support the project and uh, like us and follow us and, and be part of this whole process. Thank you. We are definitely hoping uh, this project is uh, supported and it comes to screen. I actually can't wait to see it. Very excited about it. Well, thank you. I, I'm glad to hear it. Uh, I, I, I hold out a lot of hope for it and, and I think that I've got a good handle on this story because it's always been a personal favorite of mine. I have a great passion for wanting to do it right. And, uh, <clears throat> so many times adaptations of books or, or, uh, comic book stories are, are kind of, uh, 
turned around into something entirely different. And I want to be true to the original as much as I possibly can. It's, it's uh, apples and oranges. It's a different medium, but still, that's always uh, important to me. So uh, I'm hoping that uh, we're going to be able to pull it together and make something that uh, not only the fans of the comic will like, but uh, anybody who comes across the project will be uh, excited about as well. And you've mentioned earlier that the comics span 12, it was a 12 stories you mentioned before? Uh, no, it's, uh, I think in the original comic, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, it's a 10 page story. And I think there are four, maybe five stories in that issue of the comic book. And this oh. is just one of them. Uh, it's it's uh, the first one. And it's kind of amusing because John Stanley uh, was wrote most of the uh, comic uh, character Little Lulu, of all things, and was very famous for that. And in fact, there's a book coming out on John Stanley and his work on Little Lulu. And this was a bit of a departure for him to do a horror comic. And I guess Dell Comics in the 60s, when there was a whole resurgence of interest in monsters with Famous Monsters magazine and the Aurora Monster Model kits and Mars Attacks and all of that, decided, well, let's do a horror comic. So they came out with ghost stories, and uh, John Stanley was hired to do this. And these stories in this comic are, are really dark, and they're <laughs> they're very sort of disturbing. And I guess Dell Comics, once it came out, said, whoa, wait a minute, this is a bit much. You know, we, we got to pull back on this a little bit. So this first issue of Ghost Stories uh, really stands out as being uh, uh, quite extraordinary uh, in the genre uh, because uh, they 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 toned it down after that uh, point uh, somewhat. So, you know, I, I think that's what uh, jumped out for all us uh, monster kids back in the day was like, wow, this is this is what we want to see. You know, it's it's really kind of an extension of the old EC horror comics from the 50s. Uh, 40s and 50s, which were very extreme, and uh, this isn't quite that extreme, but, uh, you know, it it has those qualities that just really grip your imagination, and so I'm hoping to uh, capture that in, in the film as well. And also with the film, um, what... Would the production, uh, like the stories, would it be like uh, more than one part, like you know, this part you're working on the first uh, part of the story, or are you pretty much combining all five parts of the comics um, into this production? Well, no, uh, let me clarify. The Monster of Dread End is one of the stories, and there are four or five, uh, four, maybe four other stories, but they're entirely different. Okay. So one has a giant wasp, and one is has a... a demon possessed black stallion as i recall and so those are those are entirely different stories so we're just focused on the monster of dread end and being as i was saying earlier being that it's only a 10 page story uh that was the kind of stumbling block that i wrestled with for many years is how to how to expand that into a feature film but by containing that as just act 1 of the feature film the first say 30 minutes uh, then you can be true to the story and not, you know, stretch it out uh, in unnatural ways uh, and, and dilute the impact of it. So I think that's a really good way to focus on um, 
on maintaining the the integrity of the original story, but then expanding the rest of the feature film as a continuation of that story, if you see what I mean. Yes, I definitely see what you mean, and that's actually a great idea. Great idea, very exciting. Yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure this would do really well. Uh, we have high hopes for it and everything, so definitely can't wait. Well, onward and upward. Thank you so much. My name is Stacy Cox, staff correspondent for DKMag.com. Uh, Ernest Farina, I would like to thank you again for taking the time to meet with me. Well, thank you very much for your time as well, and I, I hope I didn't stumble around too much uh, uh, on this uh, interview, and it makes sense. But, uh, you know, and I, I just, uh, once again, hope everybody will uh, jump on board with us, so we, the more the merrier. We hope as well. We're looking, we're looking forward to it very much. Definitely. This sounds like a great project to back. Well, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to be very exciting. Yeah. Best of luck to your endeavors. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks to both of you. I appreciate it. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in to another episode for DK Mag Podcast, Season 4, Episode 5. And my name is Ken Artuz, founder and editor for DKMag.com. That is D-E-C-A-Y-M-A-G.com. Please visit our website for the latest in horror, thriller, sci-fi news covering video games, movies, and every medium in between. Joining me on this podcast were... Enid Artuz, content contributor, and don't forget to check us out in Google Music. Stacy Cox, staff correspondent, and please be sure to uh, find us on Stitcher, rating and reviews, and help us rank. We are also on iTunes. We are also on Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, uh, Google Music, Google Plus. Uh, did I name all of them? You need Twitter. Yeah, I said Twitter. We are on basically all social network platforms, so please... Podbean. Who? Podbean. Yeah, we're on Podbean too. We're on Stitcher. Stitcher. We're on Stitcher. Stacy said Stitcher. We're on all <laughs> social networks, so be sure to catch us, uh, like us, uh, follow us, and most importantly, visit our website. Thank you for tuning in.